0: The incredible attack on Pearl Harbor, as told from both the United States and Japanese sides. Once, two nations made war. Today, they have collaborated to make a motion picture of unequaled magnitude and importance, recreating the actual events leading up to the day that changed the course of history. Horror, horror, horror! Torah Tora, an unprecedented film, bringing you answers to one of the most controversial mysteries of our age. How could the attack on Pearl Harbor have happened? Colonel, sir, if we do spot something, what do we do? Report it to headquarters, damn it. How, sir? We haven't got a telephone, sir. There's a gasoline station about a mile down the road. They must have a phone. Why was one nation unprepared while another was geared for war? Why did the plan for the sneak attack split the Japanese high command wide open? The fleet should have stayed in San Diego where it belongs. I made the mistake of pointing that out to Roosevelt. Why was Admiral Yamamoto marked for assassination by the Japanese warlords? Does anybody trust anybody anymore? Why was the President of the United States office considered a security risk? How did the Japanese rehearse their doomsday attack on Pearl Harbor? Damn it, why can't Washington give us the full inside story? Why did they keep the American command in the dark? What part was played by the strange Japanese officer they called Gandhi? How did U.S. intelligence know of the attack before the Japanese ambassador did? What was the fateful blunder made by Admiral Nagumo? How was a mighty Japanese task force able to race 4,000 miles across the Pacific undetected? What caused the notorious radar error? Yeah, well, don't worry about it. Here's a message for the Commanding General of Fort Shafter. Uh, Is it marked urgent? No. Why was Washington's last urgent warning sent by ordinary telegram? The sun came up, the bombs came down, and the world came apart. For the first time, a motion picture tells what really happened at Pearl Harbor.
1: Back, everyone, to another episode of Cinecult Podcast. I am your cult host leader Cordell, and joining me tonight is Luke. What's up, man?
2: Tora,
3: Torah, Torah.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, this What's episode, up, This episode is going to be a little bit different, everybody. Um, this isn't going to be one of our usual episodes.
2: You don't have to listen to us bullshit for an hour first.
1: (laughs) Right. Um, This episode is going to be a commemorative episode marking the 81st anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Because
2: Under Siege wasn't good enough.
1: No, it wasn't. (laughs) Um, And to commemorate that historic event, we are bringing you tonight a movie which I've always wanted to talk about on a podcast, the 1970 Japanese-American docudrama Tora Tora Tora. So I guess before we go proper into the movie, how much do you know about the attack on Pearl Harbor, Luke?
2: Um, You know, I do consider I mean, I am fairly well versed in my World War Two knowledge. Um, I do have to say, though, uh, I am the the Pacific is very interesting to cover, but I can't say I am like crazy familiar with what kicked it off with Pearl Harbor. So while I had a general idea about it, Um, I wasn't incredibly familiar with it um i had heard of this movie before but i never saw it but it was in high regard and i just want to give a disclaimer folks before this episode that cordell by his own count has seen this movie probably a hundred times and i just watched it once so this episode is going to be a lot of uh me going who was that guy again but not in the bad earnest way i promise this movie just has a billion characters
1: (laughs) and to kind of make this simple for everybody we're only going to talk about the historical figures that are like the big major players of the attack we're going to talk about like yamamoto kimmel uh roosevelt you know the people who like some of the really big names that are associated with the uh event in question we're not really gonna like, I'm not going to sit there and try to talk about the lieutenant that was standing next to General Short and be like, and then that guy's name was Lieutenant so-and-so.
2: Okay, good. Because no one cares. And more importantly, I don't care.
1: Um, So how this will basically uh, be is we will run through the movie, and if you have, like, any questions... Uh, cause like I said, I am, I've studied Pearl Harbor since I was in second grade. This is a topic that is very, you know, near and dear to me. So if you have any questions or try to want to figure out like a little more backstory to something, you know, don't you know hesitate to ask. All right.
2: So, do you think it might be good, um, because we do all the our stuff on air? Do you think it might be good, Cordell, for me to take point like usual, running through like my notes, and then you can just jump in because I'm sure you'll want to go into more detail on various items.
1: I do, and <clears> like <throat> I said, there was a lot of like trivia about this movie. One of the things that needs uh, to be kind of uh, stated is Tor, Tor, Tor is one of those movies where Hollywood actually took history seriously. Like, they didn't, you know, most people, when they think about movies about Pearl Harbor, in this day and age, they think of the Michael Bay movie.
3: Boo.
1: And this movie came out in 1970. It was co-produced between America and Japan. You know, around 20, 30 years after the actual attack. So, we're going to try to get this as correct as possible. Um, I have some fun trivia about this movie. Um, this, the production for this movie was insanely difficult to pull off.
3: Oh, I can believe it.
1: But, yeah, I, uh, I can't wait to really, you know, get into this. You know, this is probably the uh, definitive movie for me about the events of December 7th, 1941. And it's something I've always wanted to talk about on, you know, a podcast without people going like, oh, and I didn't like this and the effects were this. And this is just not as cool as the CGI Michael Bay movie. It's like you're missing the point, people.
2: Well, to spoil my hand a little bit, I will not say the effects are bad. You'll never hear that, Cordell, but I will say I don't like the stuff, so I'm sorry to tell you.
1: Well, it is a long movie, so I can understand if some people go into this movie and are, like, bored for, like, the first half hour, like,
2: where's Oh, your... no, no, my issue is not the first half hour. We'll talk about it.
1: All right, well with that being said luke take us away
2: all right so and it's worth noting this movie is streaming for free online on the internet archive which generally is a reputable site um albeit with japanese subtitles which kind of makes it cool i don't
1: know you want to know something funny i have this movie on uh my hard drive because i downloaded this movie years
2: ago Legally, he downloaded it, for the record, and we assume.
1: I plugged in my hard drive and started watching it, and I started to notice that the Japanese subtitles were missing. And I'm like, oh shit, like I've seen this movie so much, but i like to know what they're saying. And then I remembered I have a copy of this movie on DVD, so I ripped out the hard drive, I plugged my DVD player back in, and... <laughs> put the dvd and it's like okay yep this is better
2: you can't go wrong with physical media folks but all right see there's my there's my characteristic cough which i will point out so torah 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 um which has it puts up the title twice interestingly once in japanese and once in american But before all that, we begin with a title card, which I'm going to read real quick to you right now, Cordell. We have yellow text across the ocean that says the American Pacific Fleet was attacked and partially destroyed by Japan on Sunday morning, December 7th, 1941. This attack led to the entering of the United States in the World War II. All of the events and characters depicted are true to historical fact. And we have Mr. Calkins here to determine if that is the case. Yes. So after that, and I just got to say right off the bat Cordell, we uh the, the credits kind of go over all these Japanese uh sailors standing on a, on board a ship. I love the music to this movie. It's got like this awesome kind of like drum beat like of the themes of like Japan especially. I think the music is great.
1: Yes, I believe we do need to uh mention that the music for this movie was provided by the legendary Jerry Goldsmith.
2: Yes, who we know from. Come on, Cordell. Come on, Cordell. Uh,
1: he was. He did. He composed scores for Star Trek, three movies. Oh, okay. Rambo. Planet of the Apes. He oh, did, he's
2: the Omen guy.
1: Too. He did um, another World War Two movie called Patton with George C. Scott.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, Gremlins. Uh... Chinatown. Yeah, you you know this guy. But, um, yeah, so the the score kicks up and we get all these like ominous shots of Japanese sailors standing on board their ship. And uh, come to find out, it turns out they're all up on deck because this is kind of a uh, passing of the torch ceremony. The uh, previous commander of the fleet is uh, stepping down to become secretary of the Navy and uh ishiro yamamoto is stepping in to become the new commander all
1: right i will go ahead and make my first correction for you go for it it is isoroku yamamoto
2: oh i'm sorry dude i i
1: I just want to say normally you know when i when i open these uh movies i like give a rundown of like actors in the film i was not doing that for this out of respect, because I did not want to butcher any Japanese names.
2: Hey, I got Yamamoto right, so we'll take what we can get. And um, so some of the some of the troops make this uh this comment about how basically Yamamoto is running to the, the fleet because the army is trying to kill him. And um, uh, this is Ross. Uh, no, good.
1: Uh, the first sea- sailor that we see um, make a comment his name is Mitsuo Fushida, and his title card says "Destined to lead the attack on Pearl Harbor."
3: Oh, he's that guy. Okay. Yep.
1: He is the one who will give the famous "tor tor tor" signal.
2: Interesting. And this is kind of a fun fact. I, I think a lot of people don't know this. I mean, a lot of people don't focus on the Pacific in in general. Um, it's easy it? to get swept. It's easy to get swept up in the glamour, you know, of liberating Europe and all that. But for my money, I think the conflict in the Pacific is a far more uh, nuanced, in some ways, and interesting conflict to look at.
1: Most people, you know, we got to remember the Pacific, the Pacific War was, you know, extremely brutal. I mean, probably even more brutal than the war in Europe was, and that's saying something.
2: Oh, 100%. But I think for a lot of people, the Pacific is kind of tough to visualize, right? Like, it's very easy to look at a map and be like, yep, like we landed in Normandy, you know, we went through France, here's Belgium with, uh, you know, Arnhem and the Battle of the Bulge, so on and so forth, right? It's a very.
1: Look at the Pacific, and then it's like, okay, where's Pearl Harbor? Where's Midway? Where's Iwo Jima?
2: Yeah, you're like, why did they land at this island? How does it, how do the Solomons relate to the Philippines? You know, it's very. why the hell did it we have flow, to take
1: Bottle Canal before we took uh, Saipan? Like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, I do have an answer for that. Um, we had a strategic strategy during the Pacific War. It was called island hopping. And basically yeah, no. the idea was we would jump island to island, particularly islands that were in control by the Japanese, take over those islands as, like, stepping stones towards Japan itself.
3: Yeah, exactly.
2: But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Way before that, though, I think a lot of people don't realize this, is um, the Japanese war effort was very much, Japan's government was very dysfunctional. Um, for example, uh, I mean, I think most Americans still don't even know that Japan had been in war, at war with China, the, the government of China, since 1937 um and that was all basically because the army hardliner faction within the japanese government and again i'm simplifying this folks because i'm i'm by no means an expert but the the army was like all right we want to expand you know take over china um and really they were looking at even antagonizing the russians the japanese and russians had had several border conflicts up in northern china are you lost yet listeners i hope so (laughs) but uh at the same time though the navy under uh people like yamamoto was a little less like expansionist hardline, but they correctly were like the the way is uh to go south right to kind of expand our naval power japan is an island right everything is determined by uh naval power
1: well i think it's not note that you know you said the japanese government was dysfunctional and that is very correct and it's, i think it's also really you know pivotal to point out that while japan does have an emperor he is really more like his signature is more of like you know he's a figurehead but his word doesn't really have a whole lot of weight
2: yeah he's a he's a taxi, pretty much the uh the cabinet are the guys who are really calling the shots But um, to kind of sum all that up, basically, so the Army and Navy, who both um, at this point, Japan is a very militarized society, um, you know, a very expansionist. But the Army and Navy are both kind of at odds. And so when they talk about Yamamoto is like running away to his ship, they're not joking because these two sides would literally assassinate each other um, throughout the 1930s.
1: Yamamoto's life was in danger he had been his life had been threatened by the hardline japanese army
2: uh, just one little fun fact cordell just to illustrate this i love this the army and navy did not like each other so much the army had their own aircraft carrier because they refused to uh, basically let the navy say you know utilize what the imperial the ijn the imperial japanese navy had that that's how dysfunctional it was they're like, nah, we can't ask the Navy for help. We need to have our own supply line. And it's a, it's those kinds of dysfunctions that make you realize, like, how the hell did the Japanese get as far as they did?
1: Um,
2: it's also, We can we can talk about that as we go through the movie.
1: And it's also worth pointing out in this scene, they're also talking about how the, U, how the Japanese military, or the army at least, wants to uh, sign an alliance with Hitler's Germany. Because let's not forget that when this movie starts, uh, when this movie starts, World War II is in its third year.
2: And do you know, so at the beginning here, when they roll out the red carpet, which I love that little detail, actually, um, for Yamamoto, what, is, is it early 1941? Is it mid? Have, has the, have the Germans invaded the Soviet Union yet? This not that, movie- that matters.
1: This movie does not do that well of a time given dates of when everything's going on. But I want to say that this movie starts in about 19, maybe mid-1940. Oh really? Because Japan did not did Japan did not sign the Tripartite Pact with Hitler and Mussolini until 1940.
2: Ah, uh, okay. So this is this has to be, like, early, mid-1940.
1: 1940, because it, it took them about a year to start planning the Pearl Harbor attack.
2: Okay, that's interesting. So, yeah, they roll out the red carpet for Yamamoto, and him and the prior Admiral Commander guy uh, go down, and I like their little ceremony where, like, they, like, switch places at the table. Cordell, that was kind of interesting. And we learned that that guy, whatever his name is, he's going off to be the Minister of War in the Japanese cabinet.
1: He is going to continue Yamamoto's fight uh, pushing against a Japanese Nazi alliance.
2: And then so we actually do cut to the Japanese cabinet, and this is kind of where we get some more background. Because the Japanese Prime Minister is like kind of describing the overall strategic situation, uh, like he's talking about, you know, they have issues with oil, they're engaged in war with China, and uh, they're this is where they're yeah weighing the um, should they join up with the alliance with the Nazis. And I wasn't expecting this Cordell because we cut right to Berlin for like what? a two-second scene. <laughs>
1: I do want to quickly uh, pause on that for a minute. Um, You mentioned how one of the reasons that led to the attack on Pearl Harbor, um, because in the scene they mentioned how they got two choices. They can either meet American demands, withdraw from China, or they continue their war with China and they go south towards Indochina to look for their war materials. And that was... Because the Japanese were, be, uh, because of their war with China, the United States had decided to impose an oil embargo, and that meant they could not get oil, scrap metal, anything from us. And well, the, J- Japan the, was the full embargo
2: comes later once they actually occupy uh, Vietnam or Indochina, but th- they are under like a smaller embargo at, right now.
1: Yes and um they mentioned you know how Roosevelt's attention is on Europe and that is another historical fact is we did have a policy called Euro- called Europe first which in the in the event that we were thrusted into a two front war between Germany and Japan we would focus on Hitler first and defeat Hitler and then we would throw every single piece of hardware we had at Japan.
2: Which makes sense if you look at the overall situation, again, to kind of wax about World War II, what you have to realize is Japan essentially took the field with um Japan is what you would call like a middle economic power, right? Of 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 the Axis powers, Germany is probably no, Germany is definitely the only one that like economically is even comparable to say like America or Russia so on and so forth um japan the, the metaphor i always hear that i kind of go back to is japan is kind of like the middleweight champion right who when they take on the u.s is going up against the heavyweight champion so to speak yes um
1: because let's face it mussolini was nothing more than hitler's bitch
2: yeah it, italy never uh never really was that serious <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, they were too busy with the pasta. <laughs>
2: um, But, yeah, that makes so from a strategic situation, kind of focusing on Germany first makes a lot of sense. But speaking of, again, this kind of blew my mind that they, they actually like strung up the swastika banners because we get literally like a minute long scene of Japan signing the tripartite pact.
3: Which, I, love,
1: uh, I love it. We get our shot of Nazi Germany. It's too it's. Three swastika flags, a bunch of people, and two uh, black uniform soldiers just standing guard out outside of a building.
2: And for our listeners who aren't aware, the Tripartite Pact is basically the Axis, like UN Charter kind of thing. Like technically, it. Um, it I mean, I don't. I don't think they ever called themselves the Axis, besides the Rome-Berlin Axis. But that was that was the bad guys in World War II.
1: Yes, they, um, I believe the term Axis powers was uh, coined by the United States or by the Allies, but yeah, they were the Axis. It was uh, Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, Fascist Italy.
2: And, you know, Romania, uh, Hungary, Bulgaria, Finland. You know,
1: any- basically, any nation that was under occupation by those countries.
2: Well, I mean, yeah, anyway. I'm, I'm an Eastern Front, like kind of fanatic too, Cordell. So I'm always like the Romanians.
3: Anyway, <laughs> we're getting off topic
2: here. Cordell and I are big World War Two people. All right, tour, tour, tour. So, yeah, so Japan joins the Axis. And then finally, we cut back to Washington, D.C. And th- this is the first and last time, Cordell. I'll try to name names. All right. So bear with me here. Okay. Our secretary of state is this guy named Hull. And then there's this war department guy named Simpson. And then the ambassador from Japan is Nomura. Yes. And that's all I got. (laughs) I am so proud of you. Um... And so they're basically talking about how the Japanese ambassador, they suspect, is kind of running them around in circles because basically they keep up making counter proposals and he keeps getting messages from Tokyo that are basically like, no, here's our counter proposal. But um, Hall seems pretty confident that this guy is like a solid dude.
1: Did you catch Secretary Hall's first name?
2: I did not.
1: Cordell Hall.
2: I don't know Cordell is this the guy you want to be he doesn't really do anything
1: no he doesn't really do much but um
2: I don't see any Luke's though so you know you take what you can get
1: and you're not wrong you know he we're gonna talk about a scene at the end of the movie when he has his final meeting with Nomura but uh I haven't read his uh, like biography that he wrote before he, he passed away, but I read somewhere that eventually after the war, uh, Secretary Hall did admit that um, he thought Nomura was an honorable man and was truly dedicated to finding peace between uh, the U.S. and Japan.
2: Yeah, we'll uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Nomura as this uh, as this goes on. But first, we have to meet Luke's arch enemies for this movie, because we cut to the uh, U.S. Navy headquarters, and we get um, Bozo number one and Bozo number two. And please, who are these two guys, Cordell?
1: Are you talking about the two men that are, are you talking about in Hawaii, or the two men in Washington?
2: No, I'm talking about the Code Breakers, because this is where they explain about how they basically are able to intercept all the Japanese codes.
1: Actually, I have their names here.
3: You have
1: Lieutenant uh, Colonel Bratton and Captain Theodore Wilkinson.
2: Bratton and Wilkerson. I got words for these two. But basically, they explain that um, they're able to decode every single message the Japanese send all their embassies. So pretty much as soon as the Japanese send the message, they are able to print it out and decode it and translate it. And they say that it's called uh, Operation Magic Yes. because this they're able to do it faster than the Japanese.
1: This is factual and correct. Um, magic was the code name given to the machine to decipher the Japanese purple code.
2: So we cut back to uh, Yamamoto and company, and they're observing their Japanese uh, torpedo bombers that are practicing like bombing.
1: Uh, yeah, they're practicing torpedo guns.
2: And I thought this was a cool piece of knowledge, to go back to the war in Europe, because there's a lot of talk given to the raid on Toronto.
1: Yes, because this is is where the Japanese actually got the idea to use torpedoes at Pearl Harbor, because uh, Toronto Harbor, like Pearl Harbor, was very shallow. And yet somehow the British managed to utilize this weapon and sink three Italian battleships.
2: Yeah, not a good look for our pasta-eating friends. Um, but yeah, the British basically managed to do like a mini Pearl Harbor <laughs> on the Italians. <laughs> to be fair, the Italians did not do it. It's easy for us to laugh at the Italians, Cordell, but they, they had some successes in World War Two. They um, but um,
1: okay. But lit. let's put a let's put a hard line on it. Some. <laughs> and when you put those successes against the successes that japan and hitler had is pretty weak
3: yeah
2: but basically um both and i thought this was a cool that both the americans and the japanese kind of reference this raid and uh use it basically as like hmm the japanese obviously are like using it as inspiration and then later we'll see the americans are like well what if they do that here
1: Well, and this is one of the things I want to mention is so we get I'm going to allude to the movie Pearl Harbor a little bit here because we actually do get to see this in the Michael Bay film. But the Japanese did develop a technique for their torpedoes to get used at Pearl Harbor. So a normal torpedo dropped from a plane will drop to about 70 feet before it levels out. Mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor is about 40 feet deep, so there. So the Japanese concerned was that a regular torpedo would get stuck in the mud. So what they did was they put they put uh, wooden t- uh, fins and stabilizers on the end of the torpedo. And what would happen is when the plane released the torpedo and it hit the water, the wooden fin would uh, like break off and stabilize it and it would level out the torpedo and allow it to go towards its uh, target.
2: Oh, interesting. Yeah, they did mention that, but they never explained like what they did to mitigate that, so I was curious. But um, so yeah, uh, Yamamoto and company are watching his uh, Japanese bombers practicing bombing. Is this when the um, the one guy comes in with the mustache, Cordell? And or no, it's not the guy with the mustache. They bring in the one aviator, and they're like, he's gonna plan the attack, basically.
1: Um, no, that's a little bit later. But the Fushida is in this scene.
2: Okay, yeah, I got those two guys kind of mixed up.
1: You are talking about Genda.
2: Yes.
3: Uh, who, Genda.
1: Who actually, Genda and Fushida were actually lifelong best, uh, best friends and had actually went to the war college together. Oh, really? As, as a uh, fun fact about the making of this movie, the real-life Genda, who had planned the Pearl Harbor attack, he was brought in as a consultant on this movie.
3: Oh, really? Wow.
1: Yep. They When they made this movie, 20th Century Fox went all out, and they actually got people from both the United States and the Japanese side who had a part in the attack to come in and be like, okay, so this happened, this happened, this happened. Interesting.
3: I did not know that. That's cool.
1: Yes. I haven't even gotten into our trivia yet. I but it's like do you see what I mean? It's like it's really nice to finally get to actually talk about this and kind of like give this movie the due attention that it deserves.
2: Oh yeah. No, I I'm jump in, man.
1: Um I I'm going to go ahead and share this one piece of trivia right now. Okay. The previous war epic um The previous war epic by 20th Century Fox, The Longest Day, was an extreme success. As stated by his son, producer Richard Zanuck, uh, 20th Century Fox had Dale Zanuck thought about. uh, Hold on, why are the words all blurred together here? I'm trying to make out this sentence. Whoever wrote this did a piss poor job. (laughs) Oh, okay. The previous war epic by Dale F. Zanuck, The Longest Day, was an extreme success. As stated by his son, producer Richard D. Zanuck, this was because it was about a victory. He noted that in contrast, Tor, Tor, Tor is about an American defeat. Although the film made a great deal of money, it did nowhere near as well as The Longest Day. Where... However, the movie was a genuine smash in Japan. So I'm going to kind of like tip my hand here a little bit. This movie did not do well at the U.S. box office in 1970 when it came out. Um, this movie is considered a flop. However, as time has gone on, it has been revisited, re And is now considered one of the more classic, you know, older war films. But it's worth pointing out that the studio that produced this movie, uh, 20th Century Fox, they made a movie in 1962 called The Longest Day. Have you ever heard of this movie?
2: I have heard of it. I have not seen it.
1: I own this movie as well. It's a black and white film about the Normandy invasion.
2: I assume it's been uh, greatly overshadowed.
1: No, actually, it is one of the, actually, a lot of people reference The Longest Day when talking about classic war films. Um, It had an all-star cast. uh, John Ford was in it. John Wayne was in it. Um, Oh, wow. So, The Longest Day was a success. I mean, it was a box office hit. And I just want to give my reasons why I think this movie didn't do so well as the longest day, was three reasons. Reason number one, as stated, this movie is about an American defeat. Reason number two. This movie came out at the height of the Vietnam War. Now, for any of our listeners who are aware of history, Vietnam is probably the most unpopular war America ever fought until the war in Iraq.
2: Yeah, I can imagine war movies not doing very well during uh, Vietnam.
1: So, you know, I don't think American audiences were really in a mood for a movie about a day when America got its ass kicked. And three, like I said, the longest day had some, like, star power to it. It had, like, big names attached to the project. When they went to make this movie, they were like, okay, we're not going to get no big name stars because I don't want it to be about big names. I want it to be about history. Does
3: that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Okay. As you were.
2: Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's good background for the movie, cause yeah, there's not a whole lot of stars here. There's a couple people I thought I recognized, but I couldn't even tell you their names.
1: Uh, the only person I really recognize from this is Martin Balsam. He plays Admiral Kimmel.
2: There's one guy whose voice I like totally recognize, and I, where the fuck do I know him from? Anyway, I'll I'll chew on that, but. So, uh post-watching the Japanese practice bombing, we actually go to Pearl Harbor. And maybe you know this, Cordell. There's uh the commanding officer is like up in a plane with his like other guy. And this is where like they're talking about how um Pearl Harbor is a mousetrap, and they talk about Toronto again.
1: Um so the commander in chief the of the Pacific Fleet is Admiral Husband Kimmel played by Martin Balsam. The man that he was with was Admiral Richardson, who was the previous commander-in-chief. And this is some historical fact. Um, Admiral Richardson was fired by President Roosevelt because because Richardson protested moving the fleet from San Diego to Pearl Harbor. And... So FDR fired Richardson and replaced him with Kimmel.
3: Oh, OK, interesting.
1: Which is why, you know, he says the line, this was my fleet. It's a habit to worry about it.
2: Yeah, I did wonder. So it's kind of interesting because there's some parallels here, right, Cordell? On both the American and Japanese side, there's like a changing of the guard, so to speak. Yes. Um, And I kind of wish they'd emphasize that a little bit more. Um. But there, this movie, I think, does have quite a few of those, like, parallels on each side. There's one later that I, I really liked. Um, but, yeah, he's basically talking about, like, the various vulnerabilities about Pearl Harbor. Um, so after that, though, we do cut back to the Japanese. And I will say this movie is really good about, like, it kind of alternates, really. Like, we get, like, the Americans' point of view, then the Japanese back and forth. Um, You know, so
1: the way this movie was shot was 20th Century Fox kind of got it and said, "Okay, Americans are going to shoot the American stuff and then the Japanese are going to shoot the Japanese stuff. Do you know who was originally hired to shoot all the stuff for Japan?
3: I don't, but can I guess?
1: Yes. Yes.
2: I am going to guess Ishiro Honda.
1: was.
2: No. Uh, I don't know. Who was it then?
1: Akira Kurosawa. Ah!
2: ah that's cool. I he, guess he didn't do it though.
1: Well, what, se- what happened was... Apparently, you know, from what I've read about the man, Kurosawa was known for wanting to have complete control with his productions. And... Because he was working with 20th Century Fox and there was a lot of pressure from the studio to get stuff, you know, filmed and turned in. The company, the studio didn't like that he was, like, hiring uh, friends for different parts instead of actual actors. It got to a point where Kurosawa actually had, like, a mental breakdown.
3: Really? Jesus
1: and the rumor is he was holed up in his office in Tokyo, and he, I don't know, from what I've read, he felt ashamed. He was basically uh, threatening to commit, um, what, what's Ar-Kari,
2: that?
1: Yes, right? he he was basically going threatening to commit that.
2: <laughs> All over this movie, my goodness.
1: So uh basically something happened finally and uh 20th century fox paid Kurosawa to walk away from the project
3: okay interesting
1: so it's kind of a, you know it's kind of a sad thing because i i think if kurosawa's name had been attached to this this movie probably would have gotten a lot more recognition
2: yeah for sure I, I see it's interesting because I know you said this flop, but I definitely knew of this movie like was held in high regard. Like I knew people were like, Oh, Torah, Torah Tor is a great movie.
1: Well, I mean when you have to compare it to Michael Bay shit.
2: <laughs> I don't know. Did you see the um this is kinda of digressing, did you see the new Midway that came out a couple of years ago?
1: Uh yes I did. The one by uh the guy that did the Independence Day.
2: That was kind of, I mean, I don't know. I thought it was okay, but yeah, that was kind of meh.
1: I mean, it had an interesting uh, Pearl Harbor scene in it, but I was in theaters to see it opening night. I thought it was all right. I still prefer the original Midway, but.
2: I actually actually saw that Christmas night. I forgot about that with with the family like a couple years ago. Wow. Weird. Anyway. Alright, so here's what I have, Cordell. So um, Short, do you know a guy named Short?
1: Yes, General Short.
2: Because what I have is Short is in charge in Hawaii, and he is worried about sabotage from the locals.
1: Yep. So this is one of those ironic twists is General Short was in charge of the US Army in Hawaii. And he didn't like that the army kept its planes out at the edge of the field, you know, spaced apart. And it was, you know, it was done that way in case of enemy air attack. Well, for short, Short said, ah, we're not going to get bombed from the air. We have to worry about sabotage because, of course, what played a big part in America's paranoia about the japanese in world war II, was racism
3: racism
1: and that racism convinced a lot of american military personnel that the japanese americans living in hawaii might not be so loyal to the united states
2: haha ha, we fought for freedom in world war 2 cordell we would never intern hundreds of thousands of people against their will
1: <laughs> Oh boy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: Uh, Oh, we would never we would never firebomb, you know, civilian cities anyway.
1: But uh, so, yeah, short did give an order to group all the planes together on the tarmac. And well, as we will see when we get later in the film, we will see just how well that worked out.
2: So, yeah, we get uh, we get short in Hawaii. We also, um, around the scene, get introduced to Admiral Halsey, who is, I think, one of the big names in the Pacific Theater. Uh, yes. I he's, um... Him. So, after Pearl Harbor, he's kind of the guy who, like, leads the charge up to Midway, kind of, right? He, like, is involved yes. in all the naval actions around, like, Guadalcanal and that kind of stuff.
1: Yes, he, play, he um When I think of the Navy in World War II, the two big names I think of is Admiral Halsey and Chester Nimitz. Yeah. Nimitz being the commander in chief of the Pacific Fleet, replacing Kimmel, and then Halsey basically leading the charge.
2: Well, Halsey is pissed, Cordell, because because they want to send some of his cruisers and stuff to the Atlantic. Uh, Which, you know, matches up with the whole Germany first kind of thing. Although, if they're doing it before Pearl Harbor, I guess they're like, you know, lending it to the British or something.
1: I don't know what's up with that. I believe this had to do with the um, Lend-Lease Act of 1940 that President Roosevelt had signed, in which we were sending guns, tanks, planes to the British... But we needed, you know, warships to help uh, guide the frigates over across the Atlantic so they weren't attacked by German U-boats.
2: Yeah, that kind of weird, like we're neutral, but we're not neutral kind of shenanigans that we as Americans love to do.
1: Yeah, there were some instances uh, before Pearl Harbor. Um, there were a couple incidents where Germany did fire on an American ship. And Hitler, was? Gave, yep, Hitler gave a no-fire order on anything waving an American flag. And there was even an incident in China in the 30s when the Japanese attacked a U.S. gunboat in the Yangtze River, the USS Panay.
3: Oh, interesting.
1: And several American sailors were killed. The Japanese apologized, paid reparations, but it was a stepping stone to Pearl Harbor.
2: So, um, yeah, so Halsey is pissed. And you basically get the sense – this is where we start to get the sense that, like, Washington is- – it. I thought this was really interesting in this movie, Cordell, is that this movie kind of... This is not a nice movie towards like FDR and the guys in Washington because you really get the sense that like there's a couple good guys at Pearl who are like, you know, we're, we're trying to be prepared and do the right thing and, you know, the quote-unquote, the top brass in D.C. are basically like, screw you guys.
1: Okay, so I don't want to get too conspiracy theorist here. Um, I don't believe... It's- I don't believe FDR had anything to do with Pearl Harbor. Um, This movie really doesn't mention FDR too much. He's mentioned in a few scenes, like they take him off of the list.
2: The few scenes he's in, they make him sound like a chump, dude. And um, (laughs) to reveal a tiny bit of my personal political beliefs, I agree with that assessment. I am not an FDR fan. But, uh, like, you know, later on, they're like, they're like, well, what, what's the president say? And they're like, well, he sent a telegram to the emperor. Ha, ha, ha. Well,
1: no, see, this movie isn't trying to... I think that's something that needs to be stated, is this movie's not trying to attack Roosevelt. This movie is trying to attack, um... Actual people like General Marshall, um... Admiral Stark, people who had access to this intelligence and did not send the infom- the necessary information. Because yeah, well, pretty- there's yeah, but- a scene in this when they even take the president off the list. I mean, that's a pretty ballsy move to not share military intelligence with the commander-in-chief.
2: Oh, yeah, but I mean, come on. I think our modern sensibility is like Without getting political, without getting political, but you know, like various things you hear about, like the war in Iraq and that sort of thing. It's it's completely believable, you know, that uh, people aren't telling the president the whole story, so
3: to speak.
1: And I mean, that could very well possibly be, you know, the plausible deni- deniability thing, but, you know, Roosevelt did send a telegram to the emperor. He was hoping to try to have, like, you know, a leader-to-leader, heart-to-heart with the Emperor. And, as we will see, that letter never even got to the Emperor.
2: Yeah, I guess, by the time they do that in the movie, though, since we, the viewer, have, like, seen both sides, like, prepping for war and stuff, it, it kind of comes off as, like, ludicrous, you know what I mean? Like, when they're, like, days away from the, in, from war, and they're like, well, what's the president doing? Well, he sent a letter to the Emperor. Well, but.
1: It's not ludicrous. I mean it is fact, but I mean we you I mean you get the sense that there are people in this story who are trying really hard for peace.
2: Well, I think what what I got is is basically the majority of people just like I think kinda like stuck their head in the sand and were like, Well war's not really gonna happen.
1: Well, that was a big that is a big part of the Pearl Harbor story. You know how I mentioned racism?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: There was a common belief in 1941 amongst the US military that Japan could not touch the United States. They did not believe Japan had the capabilities, the technology, they did not have the skill. They really underestimated the Japanese in World War II. Um, and there was yeah, a be- I mean a, there was a belief that if Japan did bomb us It was going to be at, like, an American base in the Philippines.
2: Yeah, and that's so um, – what I think is really interesting is, especially if you look at, like, the first two years in the Pacific Cordell when uh, the Japanese and U.S. fleets are a little more on even ground, it really is that classic example of, like, cool versus awesome. Like, it really was, like, the two best navies in the world at the time. Because, okay. you know, the Japanese, like, kicked the shit out of the British Navy, who everyone thought was the best. And it really was just kind of... And that's another thing, to circle back around, to why we talked about the Pacific is a little more, like, hard for people to understand. Because it's like, it's so easy... It, it really was about, like, who can whittle down the enemy fleet first, right? And so it's a lot of strategic, like, naval action type stuff.
1: Exactly. Where Whereas with, like, you know, Europe you don't have a whole lot of naval engagement, except with the exception of the Battle of the Atlantic between the Navy and, you know, the U-boats.
2: Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just and I could ramble on about it forever. But I really especially if you look at like the early carrier battles and stuff, it really is just like it, it's the two best navies in the world trying to like, like play in a chess match pretty much. And it's very, um, it's very interesting.
1: It is worth noting that four of the Japanese carriers that take part in, in this movie, in the Pearl Harbor attack, would later be sunk at Midway.
2: Yes, I mean, and we could talk about Midway all night. I mean, whew, it just the epitome of Japanese hubris because of the whole, like, you know, like the, the one swift stroke kind of strategy. Anyway.
1: But Midway's back to, <laughs> Yeah, back, back to Pearl
3: Harbor.
2: Um. So I thought this and this is our first scene that I laughed out loud, Cordell, because we cut back to uh, Yamamoto's flagship and they're getting ready for dinner. And they're like, oh, where's this one guy called Gandhi? And I thought they were talking about the real Gandhi, Cordell. So it's <laughs> kind of threw me for a sec. But um, and then they cut to like his name tag and it's like, whatever, Gandhi. <laughs> But um, they're like, you know, where's Admiral or whatever, so-and-so. And and they're like, well, he's working on the plan. He can't be disturbed. And this guy's got like a monk candle set up. And he's just going through. He's like, Genda has planned it all. And uh, let me, bear with me, Cordell. He's like, all right, we're going to attack on the weekend. We're going to attack at dawn, you know. We're going to send in the torpedo bombers, the fighters as escorts. He like runs through the list, and you're like, God damn, the Japanese have thought of everything, right? Well, um, and in the very next scene, we cut to the Americans, and the Americans are like, Yeah, what if they attack at dawn? What if they attack on a weekend? And I'm just like, The Americans are totally onto it.
1: Well, that is kind of like that was the Japanese modus operandi, was they always comm- they always commenced like swift, you know, surprise raids at dawn. That was kind of, like, what they were known for.
2: But did you catch that, Cordell? The guy lists off all the things, and he's like, we're so smart. And then, then like, the next scene, the Americans are like, they're going to do X, Y, and Z.
1: Yeah. I'd, they got the they got the X, Y, and Z down. They just get the date wrong.
2: Oh, yeah, that was funny, too, later. Um, so, yeah, the Americans are on to the Japanese, but unfortunately, no one really believes it. Um, so the Americans are practicing bombing as well. That was, that, that's another kind of parallel that I thought was interesting. Oh, we get a scene good. where they're like, um, they're watching, um, pilots do bombing and the, like, everyone fucks it up except for the one guy.
1: You can tell Lude- Lieutenant Dickinson from me, he couldn't hit a bull in the butt with a bass fiddle.
2: And um is that pilot who actually does it right, Cordell? Is he one of the two pilots at the end? Does that guy matter?
1: Uh no. That is a different. Uh the pilots on the Enterprise don't matter in this movie.
2: Yeah. The so two pilots that was kind of a pointless scene.
1: I think it was just kinda of show that how like Americans were prepared, how were training for war. Okay,
2: um, yeah. It's a good parallel too.
1: The two pilots that you're referring to were. Let me check. Let me make sure that I'm doing this here.
3: That's why Cordell's the expert and I'm not, because I don't want to look through this fucking cast list.
1: Um, you are talking about Second Lieutenant George Welsh Welsh and Kenneth Taylor. Yes, we, we, and we we'll get to them get,
3: later.
1: Yep, we do get a scene setting them up. I like their little banter back and forth too.
2: Is that scene here, Cordell, or is that later? I can't remember. It's later. Oh, yes, it is. All right, I have mean, Anyway, so the Americans are on to it. They're doing so well, Cordell. They even have radar, this newfangled technology. But unfortunately, they can't stick it up on top of a mountain. This What's scene was kind of fun.
1: Reservation Society.
2: Because they have all this radar gear, and the general or whoever is in charge is like, well, why can't we put it up there? And they're like, the Wildlife Preservation Society, and someone else is complaining. It's the
3: like, yeah, we're going to
2: get a service. <laughs> you, and I like that later on, Cordell, they lost. Like they, lost. <laughs> they still couldn't put it up there.
1: You, you, I do want to... Um... One thing I do want to mention is the guy that plays General Short, um, Jason Robards, is his name. He was an actual lieutenant in the actual attack on Pearl Harbor.
3: Really? That's cool.
1: Um, So it's kind of funny that he's here playing his basically what would have been his commanding officer in this movie. Um, but yeah, I like that. They're, they can't get the permission to put it up there. The thing about, uh, this scene with the radar is you have to remember is radar was new technology in that time period. We, and the first people to invent the radar wasn't even the United States. It was the British. They had, you know, invented it and were using it against the Nazis. It's what helped the British during the Battle of Britain. So, and then, you know, the British kind of gave us some of the technology. But if you're not noticing right now, Luke, um, there's a lot of hesitation to embrace, like, new age uh, military tactics going on in this movie.
2: Yeah, I had to laugh because the general's basically like, why do we need this newfangled tech for? We can send out the planes or whatever.
1: And we're going to, you know, you like to talk about how the, how it's like the same opposite of the Japanese. We're going to get a scene like that where the Japanese are like, well, what's this about the airplane? We believe in the battleship theory.
2: Yeah, I did like that scene. Um is that seen later on or is that here i can't no that's later on yes that's later on okay so yes the americans can't get the radar up but um they can't get it up Cordell? anyway
1: well they're about to lose it completely
2: i know uh, so this is when we get a scene back in the back in Japan where Yamamoto finds out that the Japanese have occupied uh, Indochina, which for those who don't know, is Vietnam, yep. which uh, uh, was under control of the French.
3: Yep. But this that's is
2: kind of. Now. Yep. And this is kind of for historical context. This is the last straw for the Americans. We did like break trade with the Japanese, but. um. Once Germany uh, took over France and split it into a puppet state, uh, Vichy France.
1: Yeah. Fuck, the fuck, Pétain.
2: Uh, well, in World War One, he was good.
1: Yeah, and then he come. Well, I guess I can't really say fuck Pétain. He, I, I don't really know much about Vichy France. Other than that, it was a puppet thing. Maybe Pétain did the best he could for the French, but. Still,
2: history well, the thing—the not- thing with Vichy France is that the the Germans had basically kicked the British and French forces off the continent, and so the rest of the French leadership kind of had the unenviable position of being like, "Well, shit, do we surrender or do we get more of our people killed?" And you have to remember, Cordell, at the time, everyone was like, "Well, Britain's going to go down in a couple weeks anyway," you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, but I mean, it's just history does not look kindly back on people who collaborated with the Nazis.
2: Yeah, I do. And I, it's been a long time since I've read about the tame, but I, I think there was more nuance. It definitely was more nuanced. You know, what I mean, it's not as simple as just being like, well, he was a Nazi stooge.
1: No, and I don't want, you know, if we have any listeners in fans, I don't want them to get the uh thinking that that's what I'm saying. It's just
2: it's okay that's what we're thinking we don't care about you french people i'm kidding i'm kidding
1: it's a very gray area is what i'm saying
3: it is it is all right but we're talking about
2: indochina anyway so when (laughs) japan did this (laughs) this is all context we need to give our listeners context Cordell. so as soon as germany did that um the question immediately arose of what happens to all of france's overseas colonies right and some of those um Became came under the Vichy rule, like in Syria and so on. Um, some of those, like immediately the Allies occupied. And uh, Indochina and uh, like their Chinese bases, the Japanese basically were like, oh, France, you know, Germany took over France. Don't mind if we do. And they just swept in and uh, occupied it. And they also uh, kind of took C- Thailand over as well. fun little fact
3: there
2: but uh yeah the japanese basically swept in took over vietnam got all the resources and that's where the united states was like whoa ho, ho. stop the presses and we put a full oil embargo upon the japanese
1: you know it's so hilarious thinking about how japan and germany teamed up in world war ii when japan teamed up with the allies in world war one and took some of the german uh colonies that they had in the Pacific.
2: Yeah, it really is interesting how like Japan went from being an ally in World War One, although so did Italy. Well to, I,
1: can
3: uh,
2: explain,
1: I can explain to you why Japan uh did it.
2: Well, so they got took, taken over by like the military, right? Pretty much.
1: Well it's not just that, but the Japanese were also pretty pissed that. Uh, They didn't get nothing out of the Treaty of Versailles.
2: Yeah, the issue of Versailles is it very much like fucked over all of the colonies. It fucked um, up a lot. And that will come back to haunt them. You know, my favorite Versailles story is, Cordell. Have you heard this one? I can't believe this is a true story. At At Versailles, when Wilson was there, right, negotiating the treaty. Ho Chi Minh was a waiter at the time, and he actually went to Wilson and was like, hey, like, you know, do something for Vietnam. And Wilson, you know, typically was like, you know, fuck off. And Wilson, well, maybe not Wilson, but America would live to regret that.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, because what now? OK, so French Indochina, which w- would become Vietnam, was under French occupation. And it was under Japanese occupation, and they had resistance from the Vietnamese. Then the French came back and they kicked the French's ass, and then America went in there, and they kicked our ass
2: <laughs> but um yeah, I mean it's just ugh. we we kind of fucked up with Versailles,
1: you know it's you know I wanna ask. Because you mentioned the war in the Pacific. A lot of the Pacific War was guerrilla warfare. Like the way the Japanese hid in the jungle and set up booby traps and everything like that. You ever think think American soldiers who signed up for Vietnam went over there thinking, I'm going to kick their ass like my grandpa defeated the Japanese and then were like, this ain't like WW2.
2: You know, it's funny you say that because a lot of the, the Vietnamese, some of the Japanese were like military advisors to them, right? Um, oh, boy. because Vietnam's really interesting. Now, I'm, I'm, let me just go off on a quick digression. A lot of people don't know this, but so it's 1945. We're jumping ahead, Cordell, And the, gig, the jig is up for Japan, right? So basically, they're like, all right, the French are coming back to Vietnam. Should we surrender quietly? No, the Japanese say we want to fuck over the French even more. So here's what we're going to do. Viet- hey, Vietnamese people, we've been occupying. You want your own country, right? Here you go. We're going to make a very short lived empire of Vietnam. We're going to give you autonomy. So then when the French come back in. Not only do they have to deal with the occupying Japanese, but the Japanese have given, you know, quote unquote, freedom to the native Vietnam- Vietnamese. Who now are very pissed off that the French want to come back in and say, you know, well, you need to come back under French rule.
1: Ooh, I don't think i ever read about this. This would make for a really, really good crime novel.
2: And the same thing happened in like Indonesia and stuff is like the Japanese because you realize it took like years. Right. To get all the Japanese forces who were scattered across the Pacific. And a lot of them were like. Fuck it. Let's join up with, you know, my local Malaysian rebels or whoever. I can teach them how to fight. They won't kill me. And then we can resist, you know, the incoming British or Japanese and, or French, so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, I know the story of one Japanese soldier who didn't even su- who surrendered like 30 years after the war ended.
2: Yeah, he's he's a famous one, but. um. Yeah, in Indochina the, in, in the is interesting because basically, like, by the time we waltzed in Cordell in Vietnam, these guys had been fighting, you know, the Japanese and then the French for, like, freaking 20 years. And we walked in there and we're like, ah, we got this.
1: <laughs> yeah, not one of our proudest moments. Yeah. Anyhow, back to tour. tour. Anyway,
2: back, to, back to tour. tour. There's going to be a lot of historical digre- digressions, folks. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. So anyway, the uh, Yamamoto finds out that the Japan has occupied Indochina and the Americans are subjecting them to an oil embargo. And uh, basically, the jig is up for Japan. Um, They don't mention this in the movie, but the Japanese estimated that without American oil, they would only be able to run their carriers, you know, their war machine. Keep in mind, they're still fighting a full scale like million man plus war in China. Um, they would only be able to run it for like another year or so. So basically the, the the gig is up for Japan, right? They have to figure something out. And this is where we get, and they kind of underserve this in the movie a bit, Cordell, but the Japanese decide, all right, we're going for war plan south. We're going to strike south, um, attack the Philippines, Borneo, Malaysia. And the whole idea, obviously, is to take like the um, resources Of all the various countries there, they mentioned that the British, the French, the Dutch, like, you know, they're all distracted in Europe. So the time is right for the Japanese to strike south.
1: Oh, boy. And this is where Yamamoto is kind of thrust into the spotlight now. Because now he has to actually adopt the plan, make the plan, enact the plan. And I want to kind of give like a little historical digression about Yamamoto. Yamamoto is one of those who I do not perceive as a villain when it comes to the history of the war between America and Japan. Um, Everything I understand about the guy, he lived in Washington as a military attaché. He studied at Harvard. He knew, he understood um, the way America, how proud America was and how we would react if we were thrusted into a war. He did not want war with us, but he is a soldier and he had to do his duty. Yamamoto has always kind of been one of those historical figures where I don't actually feel any dislike or hatred for. I just kind of feel like, you know, pity or sadness. You know what I'm saying?
2: Well, like in every war, you know, I think he was just a soldier who happened to be fighting for the uh, for the wrong side, you know. Well, and I mean, if if we can tread very delicately, right? But like, you know, the dare I say the majority of soldiers, right? If you took any any Wehrmacht soldier or anything, they they'd tell you, you know, like I'm just fighting for my country, you know, and I think that's the case for a lot, you know, almost every war all over the world.
1: Well, I, I don't want to get too much into like, you know, the, with the Wehrmacht, because that's some really. You want to talk about gray areas, there's a lot of history there that could be. Uh, is, is it
2: non-controversial to say every war has soldiers on both sides who are just, you know, doing their job? So no,
1: we, I don't think that's controversial to say. Um,
2: And I I think uh, Yamamoto is kind of the epitome
3: of that.
1: Fair enough.
2: From what Um, little I've read, it sounds like you know more.
1: Yeah, I, I, I just think that Yamamoto was not, you know, there were a lot of Japanese people like in the military and the leadership that wanted to go to war with America. Yamamoto was not one of them.
3: Yeah, he's going to have a quote later
2: that actually is taken from real life where he basically says the guys don't recognize that. We don't just have to, you know, take Hawaii or San Francisco. If we want to win this war, we have to march right into the White House
1: and dictate peace terms. So, like I said, he knew he knew that if. There was a quote attributed to Yamamoto where he said, I can run wild for six months. After that, I can guarantee nothing of victory.
2: Which they they give him in this movie. Something to that effect, basically. Yep. Um, Yeah, and I mean, I think that kind of ties back into is, I think Yamamoto knew going into this war that, it probably was not going to end well, but that was his uh, his duty, you know, so to speak. And I think um oh to keep with the World War II theme, right? There's uh there's definitely, especially towards the end, there's like German German generals who basically were like, Well, you know, the jig is up, but what are we gonna do? Just give up? Like that's we can't do that, you know what I mean? Um so you know, it's kind of the I you know, I, I've never served in the military, but I have to imagine once you get higher up into the ranks and you have a duty to your country and your men, you know, it's kind of an impossible like, OK, the country has to go into this impossible situation or very hard situation. But even if I think we won't succeed, I still have a duty to give it the best shot. You know what I mean?
1: So Yamamoto finds out about the plans to move south was
3: like,
1: fuck you. We cut to Washington and the Americans find out about this. And now it's all hands on deck. And I think what? This is like one of the first times, the first of many times in the movie that they send, they order all their military outposts to go on full alert.
2: Ah uh, yes, yeah that's a good point. Um yeah all the military outposts go on full alert. This is also where we get they talked about it earlier, but this is where um whatever his name is says put all those planes clustered together. Oh yes. And uh you know we get like one the one sane man who's like ah if a monkey with a hand grenade gets in there he'd blow them all up.
1: I like the one guy who comes like rolling up in a jeep and he's like. What if there's an air raid? They hit one plane and the whole shebang goes up in flames. <laughs> I did like that.
2: Emphasized by, I don't like reading my notes, but I have to say, those wacky Americans are clustering the planes.
1: And then, you know, you mentioned the scene with the one uh, commi- uh, the one general who talks about, like, the monkey wrench with a grenade. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what, that's the scene where we're introduced to the two American pilots, Welsh and Taylor. And
2: and I do love their, uh, I love their, like, banter. What do they say? Because they're like, why'd this have to happen to us?
1: He's like, you know why we're getting transferred, right? Those poker games, been winning too much. (laughs) Some sucker loses a shirt, then he bitches to the general. That's it.
2: Yeah, I did like that i gotta say cordell no good
1: there was some cussing in this movie and this movie's rated g that is what i've always loved about this movie there's they're throwing around words like damn bastard bitch <laughs>
2: this movie's rated g i didn't know that wow this is, this is a pretty tough g-rated movie that's impressive
1: we didn't give a fuck back in the 70s
2: Shit, man and you get like titties and pg movies up through the 80s
1: I've seen Howard the Duck. Yes, I know.
2: <laughs> and um, I just have to say, if I can do a quick digression, Cordell, because, you know, we haven't been doing that on podcast. Um, This movie, what, what shocked me, and I'm not going to say whether it's good or bad, but I was kind of expecting that, like, we'd get some characterization, you know, we'd actually, like, follow people. But, like, little lines, like the poker game line, like, that's all we're going to get for these people. Like, that's it. You know what I mean? Like, you yeah. want to be endeared to these pilots? Here you go. Here's, like, two seconds of dialogue. It very much is, like, here's the historical fact. And that kind of surprised me.
1: Well, and, he, he, you know, what's the funny thing is these two pilots, these are the two pilots that Ben Affleck and Josh Hartnett's characters would be based on in that Ben A- in that Michael Bay movie.
3: Oh, really? Instead of,
1: yeah, instead of just using the actual names of the pilots and telling their story... They just made up fake characters and said, oh, yeah, they're based on these characters, on these guys.
2: Fuck you, Michael Bay. What's the fucking point? So um, then we cut back to the Japanese. And I really like this scene, Cordell, because uh, so Yamamoto has his desk out on deck and he's got like all his commanding officers around. And uh, this is where we kind of get like a whole debate about like the battleship versus the aircraft carrier. Like it starts out because they're like basically high command only wants us to use three carriers for the strike, but we need to use all six. And like the one guy is like, ah, oh, this war is not going to be it's going to be decided by the battleship, not the carrier. And they start like arguing. um Yamamoto like basically puts his foot down and he's like, look, you know, we're going to do it my way. Like the question is not whether like, you know, war is like. What does he say, Cordell? He's basically like, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it my way.
1: Yeah, he says, as long as I'm commander in chief, Pearl Harbor will be attacked.
2: And I really like this scene because it kind of shows you how, like, even though the Japanese, like, um, commanders have their doubts and have their opinions, at the end of the day, they're going to follow what Yamamoto was. Um, and this is also where we get introduced, this is where that scene I talked about way long ago, to Fuchida. See, I got another name right, I think.
1: Hey, there you go, man.
2: I know. Um, because some Japanese planes come in and we get introduced to Fuchida, who later will lead the attack on Pearl Harbor. And he's kind of like, he's like the head honcho pilot. You know, he's he's the top guy.
1: I love that scene, We get a scene later, uh, earlier in the movie. We kind of glossed over it um, when Genda first shows up, and he. I think that's
2: what I was trying to talk about earlier.
1: Yes, and he shows up with the new Mitsubishi A6M0, with
2: foldable (laughs) wings.
1: Um, and talking about the planes used in this movie, can I give a behind-the-scenes trivia for the uh, production of this movie?
3: Yeah, yeah, go for
1: it. So, when this movie was filmed, there were no flyable Japanese aircraft at or anywhere in the world. Um, At the end of World War II, during the occupation of Japan, a decree issued by General Douglas MacArthur ordered that every piece of Japanese military armament be gathered up and destroyed. Because, you know, they weren't thinking about, like, museums and stuff like that in 1945
2: i know and if i can digress really quickly i'm pissed because the japanese allegedly had like a super heavy tank that we will never know if it was real or not because they burned all the papers and all the shit got destroyed anyway carry so on Cordo.
1: every japanese plane in this movie is actually a conversion from american world war ii airplanes the oh, interesting. The North American T6 Texan um, was uh, some of those were converted into zeros, and some of them were converted into the Nakajima B5N Kate torpedo and high-level bombers, and then the ninth, and then the Valti BT13 Valiant were uh, plane. Were converted into Val dive bombers. Um, if you kind of so you know what the Zero looks like, um, kind of. Yeah, the the B5N, the Nakajima planes, those are kind of like painted green in this movie. They carry the high level bombs and the torpedoes. And then the Vals in this plane, those are the planes with the fixed wheels. If you know what I'm saying,
3: okay, yeah
1: um, and the all the planes that were converted for use in this movie were later used on other World War two um Pacific films such as Midway, the Final Countdown, and then they were also used in Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor. oh wow. Um, A majority of the Curtis P-40 Warhawk planes in this movie, uh, some of them were actual P-40 Warhawks, but a majority of them were just kind of like mock-ups that were then all blown up during the filming.
2: Uh, we're going to talk about planes blowing up, because I was impressed.
1: Uh, this movie... You, you, you know... Yeah, we'll we'll get to it when we ta- uh, talk about the attack. But like how they portray the attack on Pearl Harbor itself, and like the use of model ships, and in some cases they actually used barges and actually built like one-to-one scale decks and towers and everything for the battleships. It, I mean, it's impressive.
3: Oh, it is.
1: Uh, But but what I wanted to say was I love when Genda came in and he tells Fushida, oh, you're being transferred to the third fleet. You must have really impressed the commander. And he's like, I did. He sent me a telegram. Want to see? And Genda just shakes his head. Nah. (laughs)
3: Um,
1: Did you you know Fushida was an admirer of Hitler?
3: No, I didn't. Yeah. I do.
1: um kind of I know I'm giving like, going into like a lot of historical knowledge here. Um I I guess this movie does this movie is 144 minutes so it has to condense a lot of information. So I'm really just kind of like expand on certain things for the listeners. Um but Fushida he actually was well he admired Hitler and that mustache that he has.
2: Is it a attempt at the Hitler stash?
1: Yes. It was I mean, and if you actually uh if you actually like look at any historical photos of this guy, you can actually like see that. Um Interesting. He survived World War Two and after the war he moved to the United States and converted to Christianity. Hmm see
3: a happy ending kinda
2: so um the japanese basically so yeah so once yamamoto is like we're going to attack pearl harbor this kind of confused me for half a sec but the japanese like find a uh, place in japan that looks like a, a basically identical to pearl harbor so they start practicing uh dive bombing runs on this like inlet or bay or whatever, and we get the kind of funny line where the one fisherman's like, "The planes, uh, you know, they excite the geisha girls, but they uh, scare away the fish."
1: <laughs> yes, that line's always made me laugh in this movie.
2: Yeah, this this movie has some good humor, I think.
1: Um, uh, but no, that is true. There was, there was some like locations around the islands of Japan where. The Japanese pilots used to do practice runs like mock attacks and everything to practice for the attack.
2: So cutting back to Hawaii, though, we see that they finally got their radar up on a hill, but not the hill they wanted. And, no, no,
1: uh, just, if we do if we do spot something, what do we do? Report it to headquarters, damn it.
2: We don't have a telephone. Oh, well, there's a place a mile down the road.
1: <laughs> yeah, I always love that. Oh, a mile down the road. How fast do you think I can get there without a bike, asshole?
2: <laughs> yeah, that just like that was like the show, like, OK, these guys are incompetent. <laughs> um, but we also get a scene where uh, I don't know who the commander is, but this is where he sends the. um those two pilots over to like the other airfields. Whatever those two guys are.
1: Welch and Taylor.
2: And they send Welch and Taylor. I will not remember that in 30 seconds, Cordell, I'm sorry. But they uh they send them off to two airfields is where we get that scene and we see the guy like explaining like I'd send all the aircraft over there if I could.
1: <laughs> I know I love that.
2: Um so we cut back to I don't know who the fuck these guys are, Cordell, but the one guy's in a kimono, the the Japanese guys, and they're uh, talking about fuck. Is the one guy Yamamoto? I can't remember, but they're basically like talking about like the upcoming war, and they're like, well, what did the emperor say?
1: Okay, and this yes. is kind of like yep. si- I know similar what you're to- talking about. Um, it's Yamamoto. It's okay. Yam- It's Yamamoto and Prince Fumimaro Kionye, the Prime Minister of Japan.
2: Oh, okay. Similarly, how I think FDR is kind of portrayed as a bozo in this movie. Um, Yamamoto's like, to the prince, but what did the emperor say? And he's like, well, the emperor just sent a poem. And I think it's best summed up by my note where I say, silly Hirohito and his poems.
1: Oh, well... Like I said, I don't think the movie's trying to attack either the Emperor or President Roosevelt. Um, but you get the meaning behind the poem, right?
2: Yeah, he's basically like, why do we bother going to war? Pretty yeah, much. if
1: all men are brethren, why are the winds and seas so restless? Or something like that.
2: And um, from what little I know, maybe you know better, Cordell. The Emperor kind of, like we talked about, he was a figurehead. Um and pretty much throughout the war, he really wasn't calling the shots. You know, like He basically was like, you know, a rubber stamp, pretty much.
1: He really didn't start calling the shots until we started dropping nukes. And then he's like, okay, I'm not doing this shit no more.
3: Um...
2: I I mean, it's kind of, I think there's a reason why, like, with all the American gung-ho vengeance, one of the conditions for Japanese surrender is they basically were like, all right, we'll surrender, but don't fuck with the emperor.
1: Well, you know, after Japan surrendered, there were calls from elements within the allies and the United States government to put the emperor on trial. But um, MacArthur had a big part in preventing that from happening. Because MacArthur believed if we kept the emperor in power, it would help, it, it would make things a lot smoother with the occupation and the rebuilding. Which it did. But as part of the terms of surrender, the emperor did have to go on and give up his, uh, he had to renounce that he was a god, basically. B- because the thing to remember is what japan was practicing at the at this point in time was a religion called shinto and that's the belief where the emperor is god like he is the god of the sun and everything is through him and mm-hmm. after the after the war the emperor had to go like before the people and be like yeah see i'm really not god
2: Yeah, it says uh, since the 1947 Constitution, the emperor is a ceremonial head of state without even nominal political power. So nowadays, he's just, I, I mean, he's hes just, he's there pretty much.
1: <laughs> we're going to talk about it at the end of the movie, but there were a lot of historical consequences that came out of Pearl Harbor and Japan losing the war.
2: Um, all right, so digression over, Cordell. Yes, so this is where um, Yamamoto um, gets in that that whole line, because they ask him, you know, well, what can you guarantee us? And he, he doesn't say six months. He says for the first year, we'll wreak havoc on them. And after that, I have no guarantees.
1: I can. one, Yeah, he says six months. And then after that, I cannot I cannot promise anything.
2: So then we cut back to D.C. in case you forgot about our boy Hole cordell hole and uh this is where we find out that the japanese and united states are still negotiating um and the japanese are sending a second ambassador which this goes nowhere but uh, they're like actually, well he
1: this this does, does lead somewhere because uh this is a fact uh, the ambassador nomura he was he tried to resign as the ambassador
2: yeah, they talk about how he keeps trying to quit and they won't let him.
1: So Japan sends Ambassador Kuasu to help him. And Kuasu was the Japanese ambassador during the Nazi scene, signing the Tripartite Pact.
2: So you get the sense that this guy's like a bad guy.
1: Yeah, he's a little bit more cagey. Like, the Americans, they have faith in Nomura, but they don't really trust Kurosu.
3: Let's see here.
2: And, uh, yeah, so this is where um, Kurosu is being sent as a secondary ambassador. All I have is the, as my note here, Cordell. I'm sorry, listeners, I hate reading notes, but Yamamoto is the only sane man. Was there another scene with him, like, after Kurisu? I can't remember.
1: Um, no, he pops up in this scene, and then he pops up at the end when Secretary Hall basically tells him to get the fuck out of his office
2: but uh this is where we get this is where we get to another time frame jump and we realize we're in like late november because they keep talking about um those two guys i hate who keep getting the interceptions um <laughs> who have been like sprinkled in throughout this movie oh my god cordell we're gonna get there just just wait just wait but um they basically get the order that they're like um you know like the there's a japanese fleet on the move right towards formosa and uh, earlier they were like, you know, FDR is off the list and that kind of stuff. Um, but the one guy, that one bozo is basically like, son of a bitch, they're going to attack us on the 30th. Yeah,
1: he was, he was about a week off. <laughs>
2: um, and so... Uh, and meanwhile, we cut back and we see the Japanese fleet is on the move. And Yamamoto's basically like, look, to all his commanding officers, like, you know, we're gonna we're gonna move to attack, but we're still negotiating with Washington. But if we're able to make peace, then we're gonna have to turn back and go to Japan. And the one guy's like, oh, well, you know, like that's totally dishonorable. Fuck that. And I thought this was really powerful, Cordell, because Yamamoto's like, if any man's not willing to turn back, let him resign now. And I thought that really emphasized, I don't know how true this is to life, that, like, even Yamamoto, I think, is, like, secretly hoping that, like, you know, they can negotiate a peaceful, like, resolution.
1: He was. He, he like I said, he did not want conflict between America and Japan because he knew it would be a war that Japan would not win. But we'll, we'll get to it because when we get that scene when President Roosevelt sends the letter to the emperor... You you kind of get the sense that there are people within Japan that want the war to break out.
3: Oh, a hundred percent. but get, yeah, so um, we're gonna I, get a
1: scene with uh, Hideki Toyo here.
3: Yeah, later on, right?
1: Yeah, I hate this fucking guy.
2: <laughs> no, but yeah, so the um, there's two guys that I hate, and I cannot emphasize that enough. Uh, the one guy's like, you know, the attack's going to be on the 30th, sir. And so they send out, like, the high alert. And we get, like, the scene of, like, Pearl Harbor going on alert. And this is where... Um, I
1: love General just... Short. He General Short makes his... Uh, his aide read the letter to him. Talking about... Um, Japan, we wish Japan to commit the first overt act. But don't take this as, like, uh, you don't do your duties and don't alarm the civilian population, but be on alert. And he's like, what does that sound like to you? It's double talk.
2: Yeah, this is, like, the only time where the movie kind of flirts with the idea. And give it to me straight, Cordell, because I didn't look this part up. Did we know the Japanese are going to attack? Is there a conspiracy?
1: We knew that Japan was going to do something. We did not know if it was going to, we did not know that the attack was going to be on Hawaii. We believed that the attack would happen in like the Philippines or Guam or some type of U.S. outpost, but we did not suspect Pearl Harbor. Like I said, because of like the racial attitudes of the time, We didn't think Japan had what it took to launch a successful attack on Hawaii. Never mind the fact that there had been war games previous years that proved to the contrary that it could be done. But, we I mean, when you look at the letters and the intelligence that we had intercepted from the Japanese... It, it's almost like impossible to sit there and deny that somebody knew something was going to happen just by the wording of the document. But it, it's, it's that warning, though, where he tells them, where they tell the commanders in Hawaii to be on alert, but don't act until Japan does. It's like, okay, well, you're sending mixed messages now.
2: Yeah, it's like, well, get ready, but don't, like, you know, you have to let the Japanese hit you first kind of thing.
1: Because if you remember the list in that office that the intelligence guys have, Short and Kimmel are not on that list. They're not getting the amount of intelligence that everyone else in Washington is.
3: Yeah, that's true.
1: So we knew something was going to happen and we're definitely we're going to talk about it. But like in the moments leading up to the attack, when Bratton is like running around with like a chicken without its head around Washington, looking for somebody to listen to him. Mm -hmm. We knew something was coming. Like he's like, okay, they just said to deliver this specifically at 1 p.m. He keeps looking at the clock. What's 1 p.m.? Like, if it's 1 p.m. here, what's it going to be in, like, Hawaii? What's it going to be at this part of the world? He knows something's up.
3: Okay. So, yes, true. So,
2: those communist sons of bitches sold us out, Cordell.
1: Now, I love how Kimmel... So, we cut to Kimmel, and he's ordering the American carriers to deliver supplies to Midway
2: that's just what I was going to cut to yeah he sends uh, Halsey and company out to send planes to Midway and Guam I think or the Philippines
1: this is the best decision that Kimmel ever made because because of Kimmel ordering the carriers to Midway he inadvertently saves them from being at Pearl Harbor when the attack comes
2: and we get a we get a cool line from Halsey where he's like, oh, what should I do? And if I, you know, run into the Japanese and Kimmel's like, use your common sense. He's like, those are the best damn orders I've ever gotten. <laughs> if I see so way. much as a sandpan. I'm going to blow it out of the water.
1: Yeah. Halsey was not someone that fucked around. No, and,
2: he was not.
1: We didn't really mention it, but they have like a meeting earlier in the movie between these two military uh, guys and Kimmel where they're talking about like the defense of Hawaii and Kimmel's reading the report and it's calling for like 180 B-17s to carry on scout missions.
2: It's like, that's more than we have in the entire country.
1: And then he's talk, and then he talks about Halsey and he's like, I wish we had more like him makes the best of what he's got. Doesn't keep asking for the moon.
2: Yeah, so like the movie keeps emphasizing the fact that like the people in Washington basically are like, you know, fuck Pearl Harbor, like they're not giving them what they need so on and so forth.
1: And that's true. I mean, Pearl Harbor was severely under equipped. Like Washington was telling Pearl to be on alert, be on the offensive, be on defense. But they didn't have but they didn't have the resources to do what they were being asked. And that's why you have a lot of the, those conspiracy theories out there, which I don't subscribe to.
3: That son of a bitch FDR. I'm just but, kidding. Yeah. It's,
1: All right. So we're,
2: where it, we are we at now?
1: It's pretty fucked.
2: So, yeah. So they send out the carriers. But they leave the battleships because the guy's like, well, I'm not risking the battleships to get out there, deliver your planes and come right back pretty much.
1: Well, yeah. And Halsey didn't want them either. He's like, hell no, they're too slow. Which makes Uh, sense because battleships are a lot slower than aircraft carriers.
2: But again, we get kind of a a parallel in sorts because you can see like some of the Americans are like, you know, like the battleship is the way, you know, just like some of the Japanese.
3: Um. So then we uh we cut to December sixth,
2: nineteen forty one, Cordell. Ah yes. And this is where we kind of uh Alright, it's rant time, baby. Because the, the majority No good. Oh
1: shit, we forgot to mention a crucial piece of history. That, right, go for it. Um Yamamoto had sent the uh um, message to the fleet to start heading to Hawaii that said climb Mount Nikitaka.
2: Oh yes, 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 that's true. So the the Japanese fleet is underway to America. So the the, the gears are in motion.
1: Come on, baby, do the. Motion. But
2: uh, unfortunately, Cordell, it's Luke rant time for you. Oh shit! Because the majority of December sixth. Is spent with these two idiots um who I fucking hate. Whoever the fuck their names are with the fucking uh
1: intelligence,
2: yes. These two fucking guys, Bratton. I wanna punch Bratton in the face, Cordell. I you wanted... know why? Because his face is fucking annoying.
1: Well if you punch Bratton, the... if you punch Bratton, you gotta talk you gotta punch uh Wilkison too.
2: But literally, the majority of this goddamn day, Cordell, is they're like, oh, intelligence has lost the Japanese carrier, sir. And then we literally spend, I swear to God, Cordell, it feels like a half hour in this movie. I know it's not. Of this fucking idiot running around D.C., right? Being like, darling, will you shut up and drive? He's like got his wife, like driving him around D.C., (laughs) like going fucking place to place, just being like, here, here's the telegram. We only have 13 pages, but it's important, I swear. (laughs) And oh my god, I wanted to shoot myself. This is the it was the dullest part of this movie, Cordell. I gotta say, I was bored out of my goddamn mind watching this bozo run around. Hallelujah! Fuck you.
1: Whoever that guy was. Oh, that's awesome. That is
2: hilarious. No, but I mean, like, are you entertained at watching this fucking idiot run around, Cordell? Because I was like, get to the goddamn story.
1: No, I mean, it plays into the story to the fact that he's trying to get crucial information to the right people and nobody's listening to him. That's about it.
2: Yeah, I know, I just, I felt like this movie spent, like, way too much time on these two idiots, like, you know, like, oh my god, sir, we've got 13 pages, better decode the rest one, the last one, you know what I mean, like that kind of stuff.
1: Well, that is, you know, that did happen, the Japanese had a 13, 14 page um, thing that they sent, but they withheld the last part until December 7th.
2: Whew. All right. So now I've got that rant out from under my belt. Um, we do get some fun. And I just kind of glossed over that Cordell. I don't know if you want to like go into detail, but basically this guy like drives around Washington being like, I've got 13 pages.
1: <laughs> that was funny.
2: And like no one cares pretty much. I like I did I mean it is kind of funny how he goes to like the one guy and he's like nah he's not home and then he goes to the next guy and it's like well I gave it to the president it's like well did you talk to the president no I talked to this other guy um but yeah so we keep cutting back the Japanese fleet is like uh, underway and uh, it should be said um, it's not Yamamoto who's like actually at the front lines it's uh. N- 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 do you know how to say this guy's name, Kordo? Nagumo? Nagumo?
1: He is Vice Admiral Nagumo.
2: Yes. So he's the dude who's actually, like, running the show for the uh, Pearl Harbor attack.
1: And, you know, he's popped up here and here throughout the movie, and he he's one of the first to admit that he's kind of hesitant about this whole plan. But what? he still does his duty.
2: Yeah. So the basic idea that the Japanese have is they're sending their embassy like uh, what amounts to a declaration of war, and so the idea is they're gonna drop it off at like one o'clock in the afternoon, Washington which, time,
1: which would be which would be seven uh, a.m. Hawaiian time.
2: So the basic idea is that. They're going to drop off the declaration of War at 1, and then a half hour later, the fleet's going to attack at Pearl Harbor. I, you know, being legal, like Yamamoto's like, you know, we follow the Geneva Convention.
1: And you know why this plan doesn't work?
2: Because that goddamn typist takes too long.
1: The Japanese have the slowest fucking typist in the history of... uh decoders.
2: All right, let's just, let's just get to it, Cordell. That guy's fucking sitting there doing, like, one fucking key a minute. Did you notice that?
1: Yes, I did.
2: I'm like, dude, this is your job, like.
1: <laughs> you know, when he gets sent back to Japan, he's going to get, he is, like, there were going to be questions.
2: You deserve the fucking samurai sword, dude. Um... <laughs> uh we jumped ahead a little bit but yeah basically this whole thing is bungled because the japanese typist takes too fucking long um (laughs) but yeah we do get
1: i just can't with this like i just i can't believe a lot of this hinged down just because the typist was too fucking slow
2: but we do get i did like this scene we cut to the japanese carriers and like all the pilots are like getting hyped up and we get the one guy who's like in his plane it might be the leader, whatever his name was. But he has like two guys pushing a map under the plane of Pearl Harbor. Oh
1: and um no, Fushida's walking around um watching the pilots train. But uh, And
2: I, I I do like when they're holding up all the silhouettes and they're like, What's this? The Nevada? What's this? The Arizona and what's this? The Enterprise? That's your own flagship, idiot. <laughs> that was pretty funny.
1: Oh, that was pretty funny. I wouldn't trust um, that
2: guy. <laughs> and, and so, in total contrast, though, we cut back to Hawaii, and we see all the like military guys. They're living it up, Cordell. They're like dancing, they're partying, like. And I gotta say, if you were in the military, wouldn't you want to be stationed in Hawaii? I know we have like a pretty big like base there, like the Marines and Navy are there. That can't
1: well, be too bad, can it? Well, if you watch like any documentary about Pearl Harbor and they interview survivors that were there, they will go ahead and say right there that Pearl Harbor was the ideal place to be stationed in nineteen forty one. Like they'd be like during the week they'd be with the fleet, they'd be training, they'd be doing something, and on the weekends they get into their civvy clothes and they hit up Honolulu and go dancing with the hula girls.
2: I mean it's fucking beautiful, beaches, all the yeah, I mean there are worse places to be stuck. Um so yeah, we see basically the one guy gets stuck, he's like, you know, report to this outpost at four AM, which sounds really shitty.
1: Um, um oh, that's the two um the radar guys, right? Yep. The two guys at the radar station, yep.
3: Um, so anyway, back on uh, Nagomo's
2: flagship, he gives a little, like, pump-up speech. And uh, I have no idea what he actually says. I just wrote down pump-up speech. But uh, this is where we learn, basically, if they are able to confirm that they achieved total surprise on the Americans, the code word is, Cordell.
1: Twa toa twat,
2: Yes. Tora, Tora, Tora. And so, yeah, basically the Japanese are, like, full speed ahead. We see, like, navigators plotting their course. Um, they but, yeah. The, the,
1: they don't say it in this movie, but before the Japanese took off um, for the attack, they received a final message from Yamamoto, um, in which he decreed the Imperial Proclamation where he said, The fate of our empire rests on this battle. I expect every man to do his utmost for the empire.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, They don't really say that in this movie, but that was one of the last things that Yamamoto sent to the fleet before the attack commenced.
3: Interesting. I did not know that.
1: The more you know.
2: Um, so then we cut to, uh, Sunday morning, and this is, I think this is where we get the scene where, like, the Japanese are like, uh, Tojo is like, oh, we got the telegram from FDR to the Emperor, and they're basically like, fuck it, too late for that.
1: He's like, it's all just as good as if it didn't come two days ago. Um, Toyo, man, I hate that fucking guy.
2: So you're happy he got the rope at the end?
1: Yeah, I am. I mean, he, Toyo probably more than any Japanese leader was responsible for leading Japan into the direction it went.
3: <clears throat> but
2: um I'm trying to think if there's anything else before the intermission. I just have, they screw up the time.
1: <laughs> they screw up the time. Uh, the two privates get to upon a point, and uh, they discover that they finally got a telephone.
2: Oh yeah, they do have a telephone.
1: <laughs> I like the way um, he's like, "Hey, look what we finally got!" Rings it up. Is like communication center. It even works too.
2: All right, Cordell, you got to help me out here. This is why I have Cordell on here, folks. I have two lines of notes, all right, before the intermission. It says, quote, General is off horse riding. And then should we phone Hawaii? Nah. What happens? Is like, is this when they have the 13 documents again? Like Okay, yes. Take,
1: so let me explain what happened to you. So Take. It uh, the one guy that you hate. Uh what's his name again? Bratton. He gets a hold of the final piece of the message and it basically says you know hostilities imminent between america and japan negotiations have failed um telling all the japanese uh at the uh, ja- at the japanese embassy to destroy their um cipher machines and this is also where they get the message of saying that the message has to that the declaration has to be delivered at specifically 1 p.m. So Bratton grabs that and he starts running around Washington without his head, and it gets ta- and this winds up in the hands of Admiral Stark. And they review the document and they are told. You know, Starks basically told, should you alert um, Commander Kimmel in Hawaii? And he goes to pick up the phone, and I swear, this just infuriated me.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: He goes to pick up the phone, and he puts it down, and he's basically like, no, nah, I don't think, until we have more information, I don't, I don't want to bother him with it.
2: Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs>
1: And it just, he's like
3: let's confirm it
1: and it just drives me insane because if he had just picked up that phone and called Kimmel, Kimmel because it continues because the army gets this information and General George C. Marshall reads it and he says and he tells Bratton to he writes out a telegram tells it to get delivered to Hawaii and so they're like okay we sent the command out to wake and all of our others but we can't get it to Hawaii because the um something about at- atmospheric problems okay they,
3: they
2: say they can get to Manila which is further out than Hawaii but somehow they can't get to Hawaii I did not understand that
1: now, here's what infuriates me. He says, well, we can give it to the Navy and see if they can send it to Hawaii. And again, and this is, you know, you know how people talk about how the FBI and the CIA, that interagency rivalry led to 9-11? If this dude wasn't trying to have a dick measuring contest with the Navy and just had the Navy try to send it, Hawaii would have been informed.
2: Yeah, this is where we enter into like just the comedy of errors, or like everything that can go wrong for the Americans does Don't go, go wrong. wrong. <laughs> like it's literally stupid, stupidly ludicrous, Cordell. And I'm sure you're gonna tell me it's all true.
1: Well, it is. That's the sad part. That is but I guess... that is the sad part about all of this. Is all this stuff happened. And you look at it in this movie, it's like, oh, they got to be playing this up. No, this is how it went down. This was how incompetent
2: we were. Even the shit with, like, the radar. No, we're getting ahead of ourselves.
1: No, yep. All this stuff is true.
2: But it should be mentioned that um, we do get an intermission here, which I was not expecting.
1: And Well, I mean, that was common in old movies back then.
2: Well, yeah, I knew that, but I wasn't expecting it to uh, appear in this movie. But I did like how they did like the musical score during it.
1: Oh, I love the music in this movie. I know it's so good. <laughs> 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 you know, it's got like that real like East Asian type feeling. You know what I mean?
3: Yeah, it does. It's a
2: it's a good beat. But, um, okay, so, yeah, we got uh we got Brennan running around if his head cut off like a chicken.
1: <laughs> we got um, top military officials in Washington not you know you know you know, kind of like dicking around and not getting the information said to Hawaii because what I failed to mention was instead of sending the telegraph, you know to Hawaii like by phone or something. He tells the lieutenant, send it as a telegram.
2: And they don't even mark it as urgent.
1: Oh, my God. You know, I've seen this movie so many times, but I think watching it tonight was the first time to where I was, like, actively getting pissed off because it was like, the more I thought about it, the more it was like, yeah, this really could have all been avoided
2: they they literally have like every opportunity to realize like hey Pearl Harbor is about to be attacked and they little they fuck it up every single time but um i guess let's take a digression away from the various american fuck ups Cordell, because uh yeah the intermission happens we get like some awesome music but when we come back we get probably like what would you say like five straight minutes of just the japanese taking off
1: Oh, I love this scene. And I, this is
2: gorgeous. This, oh my god.
1: I've always, you know, this is gonna sound a little insensitive, but when I watched this movie as a kid, I was always like going to school and trying to replicate saying the Japanese lines. <laughs> and my friends at school would would love it because they thought it was hilarious. But like, I'd sit there and I'd try to talk like Nagumo. When he's like, Mm -hmm.
2: I mean, I know you're trying to do it in, like, replication, so I don't see an issue with it.
1: But, you know, I, throughout this movie, during scenes with, like, Yamamoto and that, there's always, like, some Japanese guy in, like, the way background, like, screaming. you ever noticed that?
2: No, I didn't, really.
1: (laughs) Well, like, there's a scene uh, when Yamamoto was watching the torpedo planes. And all of a sudden you hear in the background some guy screaming, Oh, go Georgia! Oh, go No, I did not. I did not catch
2: this.
1: And I always thought maybe that was, like, supposed to be, like, an off-screen commander giving an order. Now I'm wondering if that's, like, somebody on set, like, yelling.
2: Just freaking out.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love in this scene when uh, they're raising the flags and getting ready to take off. And who's ever on, like, the intercom, he's like, And, like, a couple of the admirals on deck just look around like, what did he say?
2: Yeah, I can't say I can't say I was paying that much attention, but I, I will say for the um, and this is where I guess we'll start to talk about the like practical effects in this movie. But these are real planes taking off of real carriers, and it does look really damn cool.
1: Oh, I I love it. it, it this is so beautifully shot.
2: Um, because yeah, it's right against like the rising sun and which the flag and symbolic. The, yes, and they even call that out later. Um, you, you kind
1: of get like this like moment between Genda and, uh, Fushida though, before he gets in his plane that I always like, cause he's just like looking at Fushida because he doesn't know if she, Fushida will come back alive from this or not. So they shake on it.
3: He
2: oh, that off. was that. yeah, they shake hands. I forgot about that. And then
1: Fushida goes to get in his planes and one of the mechanics comes up and gives him a headband.
2: Yep, the uh, with the imperial flag on it, right? With the
1: yep. Um, piece of historical trivia. Underneath his flight suit, uh, Fushida wore a red shirt. So in the event that he was like shot by anti-aircraft fire and there was bleeding, the red shirt would hide the blood, so he wouldn't um. So it wouldn't demoralize the pilots.
3: Wow.
2: Yeah, that guy that guy seems pretty legit
1: um
2: but yeah so we we get all the japanese air aircraft taking off and i mean it does like you get all these planes up in the air all flying in formation and it looks really fucking cool um so very impressive
1: which, which is amazing because this movie has to do a lot of camera work to make it seem like uh there's like 360 Japanese planes in the attack, which was how much was actually involved. You want to know how many planes they had for uh, – they only had for filming?
2: What, like 12 or something like that? 60. Wow. That's still a lot, though.
1: Um. The- so this – Never. The US the USS Yorktown was disguised as the Japanese carrier kaga to for the film scenes of the aircraft taking off and landing. Interesting. Um so yeah, there's that fun, there's that fun piece.
2: But uh, so this is where we cut back to Pearl Harbor, though, and we get and this is like kind of a little throwaway bit, but it's interesting because I know this did happen a bunch of times. Um, there's a Japanese submarine that's trying to sneak in the Pearl Harbor. Yes. And so earlier in the movie, we got introduced to this U.S. I don't know if it's a destroyer or a cruiser or whatever the fuck it is. Uh, and it's got like a new captain. on the, uh,
1: the USS Ward. Uh, led by Commander Outerbridge.
2: and it kind of gets established early that like this is his first time commanding a ship. Um, you know he's like a <laughs> uh, he's a green for this. What?
1: I love how they wake him. How they like wake him up for this?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they wake up the captain and they go up with their binoculars and they're like. You see that out there in the water, and there's, like, the tiny little pyroscope or whatever, like, poking up?
1: And he, and, you know, and I look, like, this is true to historical fact, but Outerbridge immediately sounded General Quarters because he recognized that it was a submarine. Didn't try to message it, didn't try to be like, hey, are you an American sub? He's like, okay, get get ready to drop death charges. Um... I watched a really good documentary about um about this about this actual submarine that the ward sank. It was part of a Pearl Harbor documentary documentary collection that I bought. Oh, interesting. And what was what was good about this was so deep sea divers had found a sunken submarine. Um off the coast of Hawaii, and they were like, oh, my God, did we find the submarine that the USS Ward sank? And survivors of the ward were brought on board to, you know, for the exploration because apparently, like, during the war and after the war, there was a lot of skepticism as if the ward had actually sunk a submarine, so this documentary, hmm, so this documentary, documentary was survivors of the Ward, you know, getting that sense of validation that yes, we did sink a sub, and as it turns out, yes, it was the sub that the Ward sank because the sub had the um, like the shell hole in the conning t- tower. Oh, okay, that's interesting you know what else was still in the sub? Two bodies what? of IJN sailors and two live torpedoes.
2: <laughs> Damn.
1: So they, as far as I know, they didn't do nothing with it. They decided to keep it there.
2: <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want to go fuck with it.
1: Um. So, as you were, didn't mean to go off on too much of a tangent.
2: No, no, so, um, yeah, so the ward um fires on the submarine and drops some depth charges, and yeah, they gen- they uh call up, is it the general or the admiral or whoever
1: um, you have some dude, well, you got this one guy at like the information center Kaminsky, lieutenant Kaminsky,
2: now, is he the guy who's like we we should report this, and the other guy's like, i need com- confirmation."
1: He's like, confirmation, Captain, I want comp- confirmation, which is going to come to bite him in the ass, and I love it.
2: <laughs> um. So basically, yeah, they have a great opportunity to realize, oh, shit, something's up, but they basically bungle it because the head guy's like, eh, must be nothing to worry about.
1: Oh, Kimball's going to be pissed when he hears about it.
2: <laughs> but that's not till later um so we kind of get again with the parallels um they mentioned this earlier but there's a squadron of b-17s that are flying into pearl harbor from the north
1: yep they will come um land
2: yes and so we get kind of this cool i do like all the parallels in this movie as i've been talking about cordell but like both the japanese and the u.s aircraft like tune into the honolulu radio at the same time <laughs> which is kind of cool
1: but it was because of those b-17s
2: that the radar guys are to uh whoever they are
1: um i only got a name for one of them joseph lockard private lockard
2: a lockard's up at the radar and the other guy the other guy's a man after my own heart Cordell. because it's (laughs) it's after seven he's (laughs) like fuck it (laughs) our shift's over (laughs) <laughs> and uh you know the guy's like oh well, hold up here i see this like you know group of things coming in he's like should we call it in and again the other guy is like nah <laughs> but then he's like all right all right so he calls it in and the uh the guy's in the radar you know command station or whatever and the guy's like ah you just picked up those b-17s that are coming in it's nothing to worry about and so Lockard, for being his good Samaritan, the other guy's like, yeah, it's nothing to worry about. Let's go get some lunch.
1: Yeah, that mm, this was really the last moment where we could have prevented the attack. So, and, you know. Uh, um. But yes, the. Can you imagine getting that phone call being told that there's a large formation of planes and then you're the guy that says, don't worry about it? <laughs>
2: Well, to be fair, he does know there's like a squad, B 17s coming in, so. It's it's not like he's totally incompetent. He just, it's a bad coincidence, you know?
1: Well, I mean, because they showed this scene in the Michael Bay movie, too, but in the Michael Bay movie, they actually call out the B 17s. Mm-hmm. In, in this one, he just says, he he goes, yeah, well, don't worry about it. I was like, oh, my God. Um, No, like, you know, no double checking with command, no. No follow up, just don't worry about it.
2: Well, you know, Cordell, it's Sunday morning. We're all hungover. Everyone's basically like, yeah, you know, I don't want to be here.
1: <laughs> I feel that.
2: I feel that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like let's have some let's have some sympathy for the, the working stiff <laughs> um so then we get like a really funny scene because the japanese uh airplanes are finally over hawaii and we get this like this this plane that's like a, a instruction plane yes that's just, like, kind of flying, and the one guy, Davy is, like, flying it with his female instructor, and she's like, ah, you're doing good, and they're like, they, unbeknownst to them, the whole Japanese, like, fleet of planes is right behind them, and they, like, come on them, and it's probably, is this based on real fact, Cordell? Yes, you
1: know? I, yes, uh, it is, in fact, the woman in the plane, her name was Cornelia Fort,
2: And the Japanese didn't shoot them down?
1: Um... me look it up quickly uh so according to uh the information here um because she was uh doing teaching takeoff and landings uh for a student pilot when um she was surrounded by the japanese she quit she Swiftly grabbed the controls from a student to pull up over the oncoming aircraft. It was then she saw the rising sun insignia on the wings. Within moments, she saw billows of black smoke coming from Pearl Harbor and bombers flying
2: in. Oh, <laughs> interesting. She That was one of three civilian planes in the air, and that was the only one that, like, managed to land. The other two got shot down, presumably. <laughs>
1: Yep. She quickly landed the plane at John Rogers Civilian Airport near the mouth of Pearl Harbor. A, pursu- a Pursuing Zero strafed her plane and the runway as she and her student ran for cover. the airport. Are man- you on the
2: same Wikipedia article, Cordell? Tsk, yep. Tsk, tsk.
1: <laughs> the airport manager was killed and two other civilian planes did not return that morning.
2: And very sadly, it looks like she died in 1943 while working for the military.
1: Uh, but she, but the, but her grave was inscribed "killed in the service of her country."
2: I'm sure she's very happy about that.
1: Oh, even right here on the page where it says "legacy," it says Camilla Fort was portrayed in the film Tour, Tour, Tour by actress Jeff Donnell.
3: Jeff, huh?
1: Who the what? <laughs> oh, her name was Jean Marie, Je- uh, nicknamed Jeff Donnell. Oh,
2: okay.
1: I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> Ooh, okay, I was a little All right.
2: Confused. I was confused. So it's attack time, Cordell. Focus, focus. So the Japanese planes are like buzzing over Hawaii and uh this is when it gets really fucking cool because you get all these good shots of like the planes right over the land and stuff like that.
1: Did you notice a scene where the planes were coming in across the mountains and there was like a cross on the mountain? I did. That cross was actually not there on December 7th. That was erected after the attack in memory of the people killed.
2: That's kind of amusing. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, in modern day, they'd CGI it out or whatever. But it's kind of ironic.
1: Hey, it's a lot better than Michael just having some, like, Boy Scouts camping in the woods.
2: Um, but, yeah, so uh, what's the lead pilot's name, Cordell? Fushida. Fushida, he's like, oh, shit, you know, there's no anti-aircraft guns. There's no, uh, you know, American planes in the air. And he's like, holy shit, guys, we did it. And so he lets loose with.
1: Ishi, su, su sego su, twa, 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 ya.
2: And uh, we get this cool scene of, like, all the uh, the Japanese commanders getting the, uh, you know, Tora, Tora, Tora formation. And, uh, yeah, so the Japanese have basically snuck right into Pearl Harbor, and nobody knows what's going to happen. And I got to say, Cordell, I love this scene because we cut to the deck of one of the ships. I don't know which one.
1: Oh, hold up a minute. I do want to mention,
2: um,
1: we mentioned uh – The submarine that was sneaking into the harbor. Mm -hmm. The Japanese, in addition to the 360 Japanese planes, the Japanese had also utilized five midget subs. But I believe only one of them made it into the harbor. All five midget subs were sunk that day.
2: Yeah, World War II was a bad uh bad time to be a submariner.
1: Um the ship that you are talking about is the Nevada. So I'm going to go ahead and like lay a little bit of history here for people. So the main targets for the Japanese at Pearl Harbor were the battleships. Um this the island in the center of Pearl which was called which is uh named Ford Island um battleship row ran along the side. You had the California, the Oklahoma, and the Maryland, the West Virginia and the Tennessee, the repair ship Vesto in the Arizona, and then at the end you had the Nevada. Interesting. Yes, and the ship um, that you're talking about, where they all get ready to play the national anthem. Yep, that's the Nevada. Okay. As a matter of fact, I have a I have a piece of trivia here for you when uh, we talk about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very interesting and um, what is this, 1970? It's kind of I don't know how to interpret this exactly, Cordell. I mean, I think it's kind of it's supposed to be ironic, maybe that like we have just as they're like you know raising the flag. And start playing the Star-Spangled Banner is right when the uh, Japanese roll in and basically fuck everything up.
1: Well, this actually was protocol for the Navy back in, uh, I don't know if they still do it today, but in 1941, at 7 o'clock in the morning, every Sunday, they would um, play the National Anthem and raise colors.
2: But it's just, it's an interesting visual, right? That, like, they're playing the National Anthem as the Japanese sweep in.
1: Yes, um, that piece of trivia here. The scene where the military band keeps playing the Star-Spangled Banner even while they are under attack is in keeping with military code. When the national anthem is played, it must be played through regardless under any circumstances. So when the conductor starts frantically accelerating the piece's tempo as the Japanese Japanese attack begins... He is keeping to military protocol while trying to give himself and the band the soonest opportunity to take cover.
2: Man, fuck that shit, dude. <laughs> Would you keep playing if you're getting shot at?
1: Um oof. yeah, that's a that's rough. <laughs>
2: um and now this is kind of where my notes trail off because we are treated, Cordell, to some glorious, glorious Real, like, practical fucking effects as the Japanese come in. And, I mean, they just lay waste to everything. They're dropping mm-hmm. torpedoes. They're shooting shit.
1: So, I love, right, as when the first bomb drops, you got those two uh, um, naval men saluting. And he's like, get that guy's number, Dick. I will report him for safety violence.
2: <laughs> yeah, I did i do like that
1: explodes and they just like quit saluting and they're like wait what
2: (laughs) yeah so the japanese have caught the americans like totally off guard and i mean we get all these scenes of you know they're dropping torpedoes and ships are blowing up and um the guy who was like i need proof like you know later uh, am i correct in saying this cordell did you catch this moment they're like they're bombing Pearl Harbor, and all these guys, like, rush to this window, and it just gets, like, blown up. Do so all those guys die?
1: Okay, so I believe this was based on an actual event that happened during the attack. Um, when the Japanese began attacking the airfields, the a bomb was dropped through the roof of a mess hall where a bunch of um, soldiers were having breakfast. And I believe a lot of them were killed. So, yes, I believe this, I think, even though we don't see the glass shatter, because it's quite obvious that the explosion happens, like, feet, like, feet away from the building. I think we're supposed to either take it that those soldiers were all, like, killed, or, like, they got away from the window as fast as fucking possible.
2: (laughs) But yeah, basically, the uh, the Japanese have superiority and they are they are just raising, raining hell down on the Americans. Um, And we do get a lot of this is what really impressed me, Cordell, is all the scenes of the planes that were clustered together getting blown up because there's a shot. You know, what I'm talking about where like these two guys are like running away from a plane and this fucking plane life size is like spinning across the 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 ground and this one guy gets out of the way just in time do you know what i'm talking about Are there's ta- like a lot of like i'm like holy shit that if that stunt man was like a little bit slower he would have gotten fucking killed
1: <laughs> okay so there is a piece of like behind the scene trivias is there was a scene when a plane was supposed to um take uh like get ready to take off and the plane was... It was life-size, but it was remote-controlled. Mm-hmm. Well, the plane veered off course and crashed into a bunch of other uh, parked planes on the ground.
3: hmm
1: And then it explodes. So all those stuntmen that you see running away from it, like, one of them, like, falls to the ground and then he's, like, crawling away to safety. That wasn't... That wasn't, like... A stunt that was rehearsed, like that was a complete accident.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the the stuff when you have like real people running away and like planes are like smashing into each other around them, that really impressed me because I was like, they they did not fake that back in the you know nineteen
1: seventy. So one of my favorite uh, piece of trivia is you have another plane that's like taken off down the runway. Um, this mm-hmm. was also remote controlled, and then, but suddenly the plane started to like actually take off, and it wasn't supposed to. So before the plane could take off, they uh, the director told them to hit the explosives and blow it up. So they blow up the plane, and then the plane like spins around, and then you get like that awesome scene with the propeller. Oh yeah. So some of these stunts were not like rehearsed or anything; they were just accidents, and they decided to keep them in the movie. Shoo. Um, we get a lot of okay. So, you still there? You okay?
2: Yeah, I was just taking a drink.
1: So. Obviously, um, the Japanese are attacking at this point. We see the Oklahoma. She gets hit by several bombs and torpedoes, and she capsizes, and we see the men trapped inside of her.
2: Yeah, you can take these ship sinkings, because it all kind of just like blended together for me.
1: We do get to see um, Dory Miller. Did you catch that?
2: I have no idea what you're talking about.
1: The black sailor who mans a machine gun and fires at the Japanese.
2: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, That was actually a real historical figure. His name was um, Seaman First Class Dory Miller. Um, At the time of Pearl Harbor, African Americans were not allowed to um, handle uh, firearms on ships. And they could only, like, hold the rank of, like, mess attendant.
2: No, wow, he was um, the first black American awarded the Navy Cross.
1: Yep. He, the first African American to be awarded the Navy Cross, and he was given, he shot down a couple Japanese planes that day. Um, he was portrayed by Cuba Gooden Jr. in the film Pearl Harbor in the Bay film, and Oh, here you go. This is an interesting piece of trivia. The USS Dory Miller is a future Gerald R. Ford class aircraft carrier. She is scheduled to be laid down January 2026, launched October 2029 and commissioned in 2032. Oh, interesting. So the U.S. Navy is currently naming an aircraft carrier after Dory Miller.
2: Well, good, because he apparently bit it in 1943
1: yes unfortunately that is sad um, I think one of the most impressive visual effects of this movie is the destruction of the Arizona do you know what scene I'm talking about
2: uh, oh. is that okay the Nevada is the one they like blow up as it's going out uh, nah, hit me with it, Cordell.
1: The Arizona is the ship that takes the one bomb and it just explodes into a huge fireball, and it like I, the explosion like knocks everybody around.
2: Is that the one where like the pipes fall down?
1: Uh, no, the, that that was on. I believe that was on like the West, like the West Virginia, the Tennessee. It's it's really hard. <laughs> I don't Yeah, really, all, all the ships
2: blended together. I gotta say, I was
1: it, uh, when you have like the close ups, it's really difficult to like get like a layout of what ships what.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so the Arizona it's the scene when the Japanese pilot, uh, the Japanese are flying V formation over the battleships, and you get that one shot of that one bomb just falling. And then it just, everything explodes. Um, soldier, like there's some sailors trying to put out fires. They get blown back. There's a gunner just chilling. He gets blown. Uh, okay. Captain gets blown over the side of the ship. And then just the whole ship explodes. Interesting. Um, they were actually going to... They were actually going to like show like the iconic photo of like the tower collapsing, which they kind of okay. do in like wide screen shot, like in wide shots of the harbor. They show that, but they had they had a hard time uh, rigging up the thing for like close ups because it kept they kept threatening to sink the set. So they were like, "Fuck it, just show the ship blow
2: up." <laughs> I gotta say, Cordell, this sounds like a very stressful set to be on. Um
1: yeah, I mean it was. Um So since we're talking about the attack, I'm gonna just go ahead and give you guys some uh like actual attack information.
2: This, this is Cordell's bread and butter. Bread and butter, folks.
1: So the Arizona that I uh, mentioned uh, of the American fatalities, nearly half were due to the explosion of the Arizona, Arizona's forward magazine after it was hit by a modified 16-inch shell. Okay. Of the of the Arizona's 100 and how much did they say? How many people were on that ship? Because I know only three hundred and thirty three hundred and thirty five survived
3: uh over a thousand right?
1: The bomb and subsequent explosion killed one thousand one hundred and seventy seven of the of the ships one hundred and one thousand five hundred and twelve crewmen on board, so the Arizona is a complete loss. The Oklahoma capsizes. The California was hit by two bombs, two torpedoes. They were ordered to abandon ship. The West Virginia drifted down on her uh, port side, sank to her upper guns. The Maryland and the Tennessee took several uh, bomb hits, causing heavy damage. We do get a scene with Welsh and Taylor. They make it to Helier Field and they shoot down a couple Japanese planes.
2: Yeah, if I can uh, speak to the aerial combat. So we do get a um, scene with the B-17s going. I did like the one guy's quote. What the fuck is it? The The lead B-17 He's like we're flying right into the war with no ammo and, uh, you know, no gas.
1: Yeah, he's like the hell of a way to fly into a war.
2: and so uh i did like this because he basically is like um you know scatter and land wherever the hell you can and did you notice the one guy cordell because they're like all right we're getting prepped to land and the guy like goes he's like sir and he's so casual you know he's like not concerned at all or this is how it came off he's like the one landing gear's not down the guy's like all right we'll go crank it so he goes like cranks on it twice he comes back again he sounds totally casual he's like sir
1: no ghost it's not coming yeah i'm just like dude you're going to die like hey he puts that plane down pretty damn good
2: he does but like this guy like okay if i told you cordell i was like all right look buddy either you crank this fucking crank as hard as you can or we're all going to die wouldn't you put some more effort into it (laughs) like you'd be fucking hammering on that shit right like i don't know i just thought that was funny but yeah, he does he does land the plane like with one landing gear off, and that was kind of cool. But uh, yeah, those two guys, uh, Dumb and Dumber, get in their planes, and uh, we do get some really cool aerial combat shots.
1: Yeah, I believe a lot. I believe a lot of this aerial combat was inspired by the uh, film Battle of Britain. Have you ever seen that?
2: No, I have not.
1: Yeah, a lot of this combat footage felt very like inspired by that movie. If you ever get a chance to see that.
2: But uh I did think this was pretty cool because we do see they like shoot down a couple of Japanese fighters and it's just uh it's a it's good it's a good visual for sure. And we do keep uh we do keep cutting back to uh I mean I think my note sums it up best, Cordell, to, uh, damn that slow typist.
1: Yeah, right?
2: (laughs) Because it's like, it's like 1240 back in DC, and this guy's typing like one word an hour. And so, uh, the two Japanese ambassadors are like, we better postpone our meeting. (laughs) Well, um... I mean, it's really
1: hard to describe the attack other than that you really would have to watch the uh, movie yourself to get a good idea of how, like, I mean, because this is some amazing footage.
2: Dude, how about the scene where the one the one Japanese ship um, plane gets, like, shot up and he kamikazes in that, like, hangar and it just blows up?
1: That i love the scene where the guys outside like hey look out hey you guys scatter
2: that was cool um and we did get one moment this kind of stuck out to me cordell Where like i guess they're like trying to get telegrams from where this like um asian kid comes up with a telegram and we get like the obvious racism scene right where like the guy the uh, army guy like stares at the kid
1: yeah, I mean, that's that kind of, like, foreshadows um, – that does really kind of foreshadow the uh, anti-Japanese-American sentiment that would grip the nation after the attack on Pearl Harbor, unfortunately. Uh, like I said, there was a lot of consequences to come out of this attack.
2: But we're the good guys, Cordell. I got too much Hunter S. Thompson in me. I'm too cynical. <clears throat> um, But, yeah, so basically, and like Cordell said, it's tough to, like, describe this attack. You get all these awesome shots of, like, the planes, um, you know, striking the stuff. Like, we get a scene where they're like, okay, the Nevada's making a break for it. So they're like, let's bomb it. Um,
1: um Actually, you talked about the scene where the plane kamikaze himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, The sailor that shot him down that you see is like kind of like bandaged and all fucked up firing that machine gun.
2: Yeah, I noticed that. That was cool.
1: The wounded sailor shown firing back at strafing Japanese planes late in the film near the conclusion is based on chief ordnance man John Finn, who was stationed at at Kanoe Naval Air Station. He set up a fifty caliber machine gun mount and despite being wounded several times fired back at strafing zero fighters during the second wave, hitting them several times and even shooting down one piloted by combat unit leader Lieutenant Fusada Ida. Finn was later awarded the Medal of Honor for Valor Beyond the Call of Duty.
2: See that's true grit right there.
1: Um, you know, I mentioned the Arizona. Uh, Can I share a personal story um, from a Pearl Harbor survivor? Sure. So we don't get to see it in this movie. Um, I don't think at this point that uh, he had shared his story. Um, Seaman first class Don Stratton. Mm -hmm. He was on the end of the ship on the end of the Arizona that took the big bomb. He was in his he was in a control center, directing anti aircraft fire. When the Arizona was hit, fire engulfed the entire side of the ship, and Stratton was burned over seventy five percent of his body, in third degree burns. Oof. Um, you actually might have seen this scene. You you know how you talked about that Midway movie that came out a couple years ago? Yes. They show this in that in the Pearl Harbor attack scene where um, someone on the ship next to the Arizona throws a rope over and some wounded sailors climb across the rope to the ship next to them.
3: Okay.
1: A... A sailor on the Vestal named Joe George threw a lifeline over to the Arizona. He saw Stratton and a couple other heavily burned men, and they hauled themselves over across uh, the water, which was on fire from the oil and everything. And, and six men were able to be pulled from the uh, what was described as a blazing inferno. Stratton would um spend about 2 years in intensive care getting skin grafts and everything. He was honorably discharged from the navy and then he would immediately sign back up and fight the Japanese at Okinawa. Yeah. Stratton died in February of 2020
2: of 2020. Man, what a hero.
1: I actually have his memoir that he wrote that he made all the gallant men that tells his story. I actually have it autographed by him.
2: Really? Holy shit, dude. That's awesome.
1: So. Part of the reason why I feel like Pearl Harbor is so personal to me is because I have his story. Yeah. Um, Whew. So. The attack
2: stuff, man.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I could go on and on with Pearl Harbor facts, but just to kind of like wrap this up. So the attack comes. A lot of our ships are destroyed. The Arizona is sunk. The Oklahoma is sunk. West Virginia and California are sunk. The and- Tennessee, the Maryland, they are heavily damaged. The Pennsylvania and Dry Dock is damaged. The Nevada tries to make a run for sea. She is attacked by torpedo and dive bombers, which causes her to get beached. Um, Then we cut to Secretary of State Hall, who is reading the declaration from the Japanese government. And he pretty much looks at Nomura and Kurosu and says, Never in all my years of public service have I ever seen a document filled with such bullshit.
2: I gotta say, Cordell, I kind of rolled my eyes here. I mean, I, my think, I keep referencing. This is the only show, folks. I think I reference on notes, but I have those sneaky, underhanded Japanese tisk tisk tisk. I just was like, oh my god, there's no way this guy actually said this crap.
1: Uh, no, he did.
2: I don't know, man. Whoever this actor was, though, I'm sorry, Cordell Hole, whoever you were, you did. I don't know, man. I was rolling my eyes. And he's like, this is the most underhanded thing I have ever seen.
1: Well, like I said at the beginning of the show, he eventually came around and admitted that he thought Namur was an honorable man and was trying to find peace between the countries, but... I mean, what what comes down to it is, and this is a frightening thought, Luke, but Ambassador Nomura didn't know about the attack.
2: Well, yeah, because there was no long distance phone call, right? Back then, it was all uh, telegram. No, they
1: didn't trust him. The Japanese government didn't trust him not to warn the Americans. Oh, really? So they used Nomura to stall and buy time until they could figure out what to do. And then when they had decided to attack, they still didn't tell him. And it's pro- and it's one of the most infamous cases of a government manipulating its um, foreign ambassador
3: to, how do I put this?
1: Uh, basically, Manipulating its ambassador to use for war It's the best way I Mm -hmm. can put it. So Hall tells basically tells him to leave. Really nothing else to be said at this point. And Fushida makes it back to the Akagi.
2: All right. And this is where I did some research, Cordell. Because Fushida comes back, and he's like, you know, well, where's the next wave? And so for years, I had always heard, Cordell, I'd heard the rumor, right, you know, the the long-awaited, you know, if the Japanese had launched a third wave, they would have, you know, struck the oil containers and, you know, repair facilities, and they would have really won the war, so to speak.
1: Well, I don't know if they would have won the war, but you are correct. There's a lot of speculation, and this is... Fushida wanted a third wave was we attacked, they bombed the ships, they bombed the airfields, but they missed the oil reserves, they missed the dry docks, they missed the repair facilities. I mean.
2: Well, might- hold up there, Cordell. I did my research. I did a thorough Google. <clears throat> and. Least,
1: thorough Google.
2: Yeah, a thorough Google. And so there's conflicting reports, actually, because later on Yamamoto, I think, would re- actually did regret not sending the third wave. Um, but in the moment, the day after, he supported Nagomo's decision to not send the third wave. The facts are this, Cordell. We're talking truth. So the first wave really did come on, like, took took the U.S. basically without, like, you know— Um, totally by surprise so they encountered very little resistance the majority of Japanese casualties were in the second wave when the U.S. was starting to get shit together with the anti-aircraft and such
1: that is correct
2: a third wave was never planned that is a fact so if the Japanese had done a third wave it would have been four hours later and here are the facts, Cordell. By then, the U.S. would definitely have been, you know, on the uh, on the alert. Right. Ahem, quote, the only time a third wave was even considered was after the successes of the first two waves when the junior officers blood was up. This tendency is why one, there are plans and two senior officers exist to rein in younger officers. American defenses had stiffened remarkably between waves one and two, and Japanese losses after wave two were close to one fourth of the entire strike force. The Kido Butai actually pushed a lot of aircraft over the side of the carriers while on the way home as they were beyond any hope of repair. So, I think I can reasonably conclude that while we can speculate about a third wave, I don't think an actual third wave would have done much except shoot more Japanese aircraft out of the sky. Right in, listeners, if you if you choose to disagree.
1: I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, if they had launched the third wave, they could have hit the oil reserves. They could have hit our dry docks, but it probably w- – you're right. It would have cost them a lot more because I'm looking at the casualty list here for the attack. You want me to read the casualty list? Um,
3: Yeah,
2: sure. Go for it.
1: For the United States, four battleships sunk, four battleships damaged, one ex-battleship sunk, three cruisers damaged, three destroyers damaged, 188 aircraft destroyed, 159 aircraft damaged, 109 Marines killed, 208 Army men killed, 2,335 total killed, 1,143 wounded. For the Japanese, five midget submarines sunk, 29 aircraft destroyed, 74 aircraft damaged, 64 pilots killed, and one sailor from one of the midget subs was captured. (laughs) And then... Sixty eight civilians were killed on the island, thirty-five were wounded, three civilian aircraft shot down. Um and I, I I wanna go on the record and say that civilians did die in the attack on Pearl Harbor. And while some of those deaths can be attributed to the Japanese, the majority of civilians that were killed during the attack you want to know what the unfortunate truth was? What? Friendly fire. Oh, really? The shells from the battleships that weren't exploding in the air were falling on Honolulu. Oof. So that bullshit that Michael Bay pulled in Pearl Harbor showing the Japanese purposely attacking a civilian hospital. That is is bullshit. That is just Michael Bay trying to sh- be trying to be like, "Hey, I'm racist, but not really. I just want to make you hate the Japanese."
2: Are you telling me Michael Bay did not do a uh, actual factual, you know, God, representation? It's,
1: it's so fucking crazy. <laughs> um,
2: but um, yeah. We wrap this up, Cordell.
1: Oh. Well, We'll end it with the last scene. We cut to Yamamoto on the battleship Nagato.
2: Well, what's interesting to to me, Cordell, is so when you think of Pearl Harbor, right, what do you think about? Because I immediately go to uh, FDR's speech, right, you know, December 7th, a day that will live in infamy.
1: Yep. It's, It's funny that they don't use it in this.
2: That's what I was going to say. We get the Japanese version of that. Did you notice that? It's kind of like
1: and it's like what the funny, Japanese said. And here's what's funny: there is actually no record of Yamamoto ever actually uttering those words. But because of this movie, it's become so like ingrained in our pop, like our idea of Pearl Harbor, that we that we've just kind of attributed it to Yamamoto we don't know if he actually said it
2: yeah it ends with uh yamamoto they get the news that the uh the attack is going well but he he basically says uh we have awoken the sleeping giant and now i fear oh, what is
1: resolve yes we did get a we did get a brief scene of halsey coming back to pearl harbor too. And they basically he's he's just looking at the fleet destroyed. He's like, how fast can you get us back out of here?
2: Oh, and I found out who that guy whose voice I recognize was is um, G.D. Spradlin, who maybe, you know, Cordell. He was the colonel in Apocalypse Now, and he's the senator in The Godfather Part Two. He has a very distinctive voice.
1: What's his name?
2: Uh G. D. Spradlin. But he's the guy, it says he's uh, Maurice E. Kurtz, Kimmel's communication officer. He's the guy at the one of the end scenes who's like talking about the casualties.
1: Oh yep. Yeah, I am looking at his Yeah, I see. I'm looking at his Wikipedia
2: here. Yeah, so the whole movie at the end of the movie, I was like, how the fuck do I know that guy's name? Because in Apocalypse Now, if you've seen that movie, he's like. You know, Kern of Walter E. Kurtz was the finest star. the. Uh,
1: Part Two, Apocalypse Now.
2: Have you seen Apocalypse Now, Cordo?
1: I actually have.
2: Oh, one of the best movies I've ever made.
1: He was in that uh, war series I like, War and Remembrance. Oh, he was in a episode of Columbo.
2: <laughs> I do like Columbo. Um, anyway. But yeah, so earlier in this episode, I was like, who the fuck is that guy's name? And now I know.
1: But
3: Uh, yeah.
1: We end with uh, the sea of the Yamamoto looking out towards the Pacific as the Pacific turns into the blazing inferno of Pearl Harbor.
3: Very somber
2: note to end on.
1: And with that, we will credit. So Luke. Tor Tor Tor. Do you give this movie a big O, a high, medium, low? Or are you getting rid of your dick?
2: <laughs> so you know what's interesting is like you said at the beginning of this podcast, Cordell, this is a docudrama, right? And I was not expecting that. I thought this would be a traditional movie. But there's not there's not really a plot, right? Like this is this is the story of Pearl Harbor.
1: I mean the plot is basically what you could read in a history book, basically.
2: Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. It's it's, it's a the history- Wikipedia page, right? Come to life. Um
1: Can I make a bold statement?
2: Sure.
1: We live in an age where people don't like to read history books anymore. People don't like to read books in general. So I feel like a good way of showing history of Getting history out there to audiences is to turn history into you know, if they're done respectfully and done as close to the truth like this movie, the best way to show history is on film. And I I'm gonna wait and say my piece after your recommends, but it's something I believe.
2: No, I, I totally I totally buy that. Um, And I agree with you. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I struggle to really because I guess what I would say is if you want the story of Pearl Harbor, this movie does an excellent job of portraying um, both sides, the Japanese and the American. Um, It makes both sides sympathetic, maybe isn't the right word, but I think it does a very good job of kind of telling the unbiased story of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, the effects for the time and still today are very impressive. Um, like I said, the, all the aerial combat footage, all of that, the men is just really good. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what to say, Cordell, beyond if you want the story of Pearl Harbor, I think this this is the definitive the definitive movie for it. So I will go ahead and give it a high. Check it out, folks.
1: And, you know. Luke mentioned it at the beginning of the episode. I've seen this movie almost 150 times throughout my, uh, in the like, I think I discovered this movie when I was five, six years old, and I've only watched it repeatedly since. Um, this is the definitive Pearl Harbor movie for me. You know, whenever I watch a movie that might have something to do with Pearl Harbor, I'll check it out. But to me, no movie can really capture the spirit of Pearl Harbor the way this movie does for me. Um, and I think by how I've talked about Michael Bay's movie, you kind of get an idea of how I feel about that piece of shit. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, to kind of put it in perspective, any movie or TV show that has involved Pearl Harbor in some way Has always taken footage from this movie. Can I give you some examples? Sure. The 1976 movie Midway. The sci-fi movie The Final Countdown. um, A TV show called Pearl the Miniseries. An episode of Magnum P.I. used footage from this movie. Um... I think the last time I saw footage from this movie get used, you know that 2008 movie, Australia, with Hugh Jackman?
2: I have no idea, but do tell.
1: Well, they. Um, have you ever heard of the bombing of Darwin? When
2: the Japanese. Yes, vaguely.
1: Uh, the same forces, the same Japanese forces that attacked Pearl Harbor attacked the uh, port of Darwin in Australia. And they used footage from Tora, Tora, Tora to show the bombing of Darwin. Oh, interesting. So this movie is a go-to for people when they want to use Pearl Harbor footage. And which is convenient because, you know, clean it up, make it look. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful movie. But aerial combat, the, you know, depiction of the attack itself. You know, they remade the American Pacific Fleet by using models and lifestyle, you know, they built barges and built one-to-one scale replicas of the battleships for close-up scenes. They used hundreds of off-duty U.S. military reservists to play U.S. sailors for the attack. They converted American World War II planes into the Japanese fleet. I mean, the level of care that was taken in making this movie to tell this story, I cannot really express the type of respect I have for this. Because usually movies that do World War II or war movies in general, they don't care about getting everything down to the last detail. They're like, "Eh, Mm ah, just put some uniforms on the guys and make them go shoot each other. Which, I don't mind that, but if you're trying to tell, like, a historical event story, I love it when people try to be as close to accurate as possible, and this movie does that. So, I am giving Tor, Tor, Tor the big O. This is Ooh. my favorite World War Two movie. This is my favorite Pearl Harbor movie. This is actually my favorite war movie of all. Like, if I had to make a list of top ten war movies, Tor, Tor, Tor is the number one spot. Um, And I have a piece of trivia here for you that's not on IMDb, but... A 1994 survey at the USS Arizona Memorial determined that for Americans, Tor Tor was the most common source of popular knowledge about the Pearl Harbor attack. So this movie has, you know, this movie did its job for people who didn't want to pick up a history book. This movie did its job in teaching people the history of Pearl Harbor. So, yeah, I'm given this movie. The big O. Um, this movie was nominated for five um Oscars at the thirty at the 43rd Academy Awards. Um, including Best Cinematography and Best Film Editing, and it won best visual effects. Now, can I tell you the one thing attached to this movie? And it's not against this movie, but you remember how last time I said I hate Roger Ebert?
2: Mm-hmm. He didn't like it, did he?
1: Roger Ebert gave this movie one star. What the fuck? Calling it one of the deadest, dullest blockbusters ever made.
2: See, that just goes to show you, I mean, yeah, sure, like, you know, there's a lot of setup, but I would not call it dull besides those two goddamn idiots. But besides that, I don't know how you could give this one star.
1: Um... I'm just going to share a couple more pieces of trivia, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Along with the movies The Battle of Britain, The Longest Day, A Bridge Too Far, and Patton, Tor, Tor, Tor is seen at the time as one of the five most representative films of World War II. This film has a greater focus on realism than the others and far less Hollywood-style storytelling, which we've talked about. And then... Oh, I think I mentioned this. One of the highlight shots planned for the Pearl Harbor attack scene was the collapse of the USS Arizona's forward tripod mast after the ship was destroyed. The shot was scrapped when the special effects team told filmmakers they could not guarantee what would happen when the collapse was triggered. They were afraid it was going to sink the whole damn set. (laughs) Um I do Now I do want to um mention a piece of real history. You know how I mentioned how they had to recreate the like the Japanese planes and everything? Yeah. Every ship that was involved in the attack on Pearl Harbor, like all the US battleships no longer exist. The Arizona remains at Pearl Harbor as a memorial. The Oklahoma sank. What was being towed to uh, California for scrap. And then after World War II was over, the Nevada, the West Virginia, the California, the Pennsylvania, and the Maryland and Tennessee were all either sold for scrap or they were sunk by the U.S. government during the atomic... the, the What was it called? The... the but the bikini atoll atomic tests. Yeah. And you know that pisses me off. <laughs> but anyhow, um yeah, I think that's pretty much all I've got in terms of uh It's pretty much all I have in terms of uh special like you know trivia for the movie but yeah people if you if you want an accurate like faithful portrayal of pearl harbor check this movie out
2: if we have any listeners post on our facebook group i will post a link to the internet archives maybe i'll do that anyway
1: (laughs) well ladies and gentlemen thank you for joining us today uh for this special commemorative episode to mark the Pearl Harbor attack. And join us next time. when we bring you. Silent Night Deadly Night. Part 2.
3: Punish. So
1: I will. See you all next time. Lucas shall be joining me.
2: Take it easy guys.
1: And we are going to give you. A big old lumber coal. Ho ho ho. Good night ho.
2: everyone. Good night guys.